Oh, hey, everybody. Didn't see you there. Welcome to Halloween is Forever, the show where we pick a topic, listen to three mutant horror nerds, rip each other's guts out on the way to deciding whose favorite flick reigns supreme. I'm Brian. I'm Megan. I'm Steve. And how did you guys feel about that intro? Very topic specific. I I, I actually I don't mind it. I don't mind it. But I also <laughs> at the same time, I'm episode? like, I'm just like. <laughs> Why do you do this to me? Because I never know. I never, and I'm kind of yeah. here for it. I'm totally here for it. Maybe we just do every ep- every episode. We just start it with some sort of cryptic uh, Latin <laughs> prayer. I think. Are we, uh, we going to start uh, a Satanist cult in, in our area? Tra- Listen, that what's I've happen? been trying. All these squares out here don't want to party with Satan, <laughs> and it's pissing me off so bad. Um, Man, what but, a perfect day to be talking about this. I know, I know. I'm looking outside. It's kind of rainy, thunderstorm going on outside. It's getting a little creepy, little icky, spooky out there. Um, but in case uh, you didn't listen to the last episode, and I don't know what the fuck you're doing, if that's the case, um, we are going to do religious horror. That's our topic for today. This is episode number two, by the way. Uh, episode uh, main show, episode number two. We cranked out a few uh, mini sods between this show and and our episode number one topic, which was uh, summer camp slashers. Um, but as we talked about in the last show, we're doing religious horror. And if you listen to that show, you already know what movies we're doing and maybe even got an opportunity to check out one or two or three of them. But um, so uh, first of all, if, if you didn't, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, you didn't catch the Summer Camp Slashers episode, I'll explain real quick what we're going to do. Uh, we, we selected a topic. Uh, the first episode, we picked the topic. The second episode, episode number two that we're currently in, uh, we picked three random topics. And then we put it out to our friends on social media and, and listeners and, and everyone and kind of took a little poll, said, what do you want to what do you want of these three topics for us to do? And, and uh, the winner by the, th- the, the slimmest of margins was religious horror. So uh, so we picked uh, on the last show. We talked about the movies we're going to do. What did you guys think? I know there were a number of first time watches among us. Uh, for me, I'll say. Uh, emotionally draining, <laughs> specifically for you two shitheads. The movies you picked were just brutal. It is a good. I guess then I'm always gonna say I'm gonna bring the pain. You know? Emotionally draining and or just mind twisting. I guess is a good way to say it. No, I was pretty stoked um, on it. Yeah, because I, I, I've definitely I've seen parts of Exorcist three, but it, I think I actually came into it almost when shit got real on Exorcist three. So this was my first time like beginning to end, which was dope. And then obviously, I feel in England was just a good mind fuck. Meg, I know nobody can see you but us right now, but you holding the mic, sunglasses, <laughs> pointing at us while talking with a cigarette in your hand. You look like Charlie Kelly with with the, you know, with all the things on the wall, with the string. and everything. Hey, guys. hey that. guys, so let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. If you had like a tie and your collar undone and yours, that would be that would be perfect. But I guess you, maybe we're going to have to start video recording these two. We probably will at some point, especially when we do it in person, because I may, imagine somebody's going to hit somebody with a hanging vertical suplex or something like that <laughs> as we discuss these things. I'll bring so. the table, guys. <laughs> yeah, How else do you get to take the belt home? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. 
That's true. I'm just wondering so. when we're officially going to have a belt made. Listen, guys, um, update on the belt. I want it to be made from only the finest materials and precious metals. Um, so I've got the order in. Materials are backed up, as we know. Supply chain's all screwed up. Uh, <laughs> so that's where we're at with the belt. But it is going to happen at some point, I promise. Um, but uh, yeah, eventually we're going to have a physical belt. But um, yeah, so so uh, uh, again, uh, religious horror. And for those of you who didn't uh, uh, didn't listen to episode one, uh, we're each going to talk about our movie that we selected. We're going to just kind of do an overview, some fun facts, that sort of cool stuff, and then we'll talk about why we think ours our our film should reign supreme. And then at the end, we'll all vote. We'll decide did anybody change their mind and truly think one of the other two uh, films were were deserve to win um, and. If not, we vote on our number two, and then we uh, uh, and then we go from there and, and figure out who's going to reign supreme. We only did one last time, and it was pretty clear cut. We all voted for our own movie. <laughs> Neither of you voted for mine, uh, <laughs> so I got to be the tiebreaker. Uh, and then you voted for each other's for second, so yes. I got to be the tiebreaker. <laughs> and Meg, uh, Meg, Meg took it home in episode number one. So. We shall see uh, what happens right now. As you can see, a lot of fanfare. I'm humble, guys. I'm real humble. She's marching okay. to each corner of the ring, holding her belt up at all four corners of the ring right now. This and is my house also. Let's yeah. just say that. You know what, though? Of, of, of the, of the, uh, the two of us, I am the one uh, repping the Stone Cold, though. Speaking of nice. it, what, what beers are you drinking? I'm drinking uh, Steve Austin's Broken Skull IPA. What? Uh, at least six sixty percent because Stone Cold said so. What? I'm I'm slightly <laughs> triggered by that beer yeah. solely because literally right before the pandemic, I had tickets to go see WWE Monday Night Raw. Yeah. On March sixteenth, uh, where they were going to have Stone Cold, The yep. Undertaker. It was going to be a stacked lineup, and I'm a little bit sad about that still. But anywho, no, I'm really excited. Yeah. yeah. And they they did ship in a whole shitload of that El Segundo beer mm -hmm. for the event specifically in Pittsburgh because then you could like JRs picked up a lot of the uh, the leftover. So mm -hmm. you're saying is that's what Brian's still drinking? No, Could this be. one's fresh. <laughs> this one, yeah, this one, this one was uh, was just packaged like six weeks ago. Thanks. So this one's actually in pretty darn good shape. A little bit more than that, like seven seven eight weeks ago. So it's still still well in code, and it was cold. I got this at Creekside, and it's drinking real nice. Oh yeah. Um, what are you guys drinking? Anything fun? I am, um, like I mentioned on one of our last episodes that, uh, in my obsession of for way wayfinder that I picked up a box from, um, the six most metal breweries X not fest collaboration beer box. And one, I decided to go with, um, a little more in the monitors by Broken Goblet, which is a Kolsch style ale. And you know what? Uh, I'm kind of here for it. Almost like has a little bit more of like an American hop character, which I was like, okay, that's a it's not what I was expecting, but yeah. I'm okay. I'm okay with it. I'm fine mm -hmm. with it. But I love the name and I love the art and it's fun. You've been fucking with Kolsch's lately. This is not the first episode you've been drinking a Kolsch. Am I wrong about that? Because um, I remember, I remember at one point specifically I using the phrase Kolshi boy. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so that's the only reason I remember that. Well, maybe that. I'm becoming a Kolshi girl. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I mean, Kolshi ghoul? Can I be called a Kolshi ghoul? Kolshi ghoul. Yes. Okay. There you go. That's there a t-shirt. Mark it down. Mark it down. <laughs> 
What do you got, Steve? Anything fun? Uh, I'm actually not on the beer tonight because I was yeah. on the beer last night. We did the beer for the Hop Nation podcast. Oh, that's right. You yeah. guys did a, did a show last night. But uh, yeah, the I'm drinking something a little different. It's the... Oh, 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 see if we can get it on the camera. Nope. It's a, oh, is that the Hop Tea? Yes. Yeah. It's a sparkling Hop Tea by Hop Lark. I it's still haven't a, had that. I haven't either, but I've heard good things. I have too. I think, Meg, I think you told me good things, actually. It's, a, it's not bad. It's a this one's the black tea version and it's hopped with Simcoe and Citra. I don't know. I don't notice a whole lot uh, uh, Simcoe wise. It's not yeah. very piney. Yeah, like I was I was expecting mm. like almost like a real piney West Coast tea. Yeah, but it you just get a lot more of the black tea and kind of the citrus uh, you know citra notes from it. But, yeah. That's cool. I haven't had it. Where do you where do you find it? Like, where is it around? Do they have it at like beer, like places that sell beer? Because is, is it N.A. or what? Is it just hot yeah, tea? Yeah, it's N.A. It, yeah. But uh, I actually got this from uh, my friend Dennis at First Sip Brew Box. Because oh. they, okay. they were featuring them in their subscription up, box Dennis? for the month. And so he had he just gave me some as a sample. But yeah. That's cool. I feel like they they started getting advertised to me. But um, I've also uh, seen other things like hop water, but it's like more of like a seltzer. So it's like mm -hmm. the LaCroix for the beer people who don't want to get fucked up. Yeah. Right. I think Lagunitas was making that hop water for a minute. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's the one you've seen. but No, I it's not. It's a different doing... one. I had the I had the Lagunitas one because it's in a clear bottle, weirdly mm -hmm. enough. Like it's funny to put like a seltzer in a, in a clear bottle. Yeah. But, um, it was all right. Yeah. I don't hate it. I don't know if I be drinking it by the case but uh yeah one or two is not uh not, i've not seen offensive. a lot of people do like dry january and they'll drink that or something that's, like that that's what weed drugs is for <laughs> <laughs> dry january is weed month <laughs> i not i don't know why i'm pretending that i do dry january anyway but um yeah so ooh, a little strike of thunder hot, ooh, do you guys hear that by, it's getting uh, a little Brian over here <laughs> yeah I got a little spooky strike of thunder over here uh, just in time to to start. Actually, before we jump into the movie, let's talk about, since we're already on the topic of beer, let's talk about our beer pairings for the movie. Do we have an idea? Anybody got an idea for for what they wanted to pair the beer for? I can go first uh, if 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 uh, if Yins are not opposed to that. Uh, sure, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so as a reminder, so for those of you who didn't listen to uh, the last mini-sode, the movie I chose is 1990s Exorcist Part 3. There's not a, spoiler alert, not a ton of exorcism in Exorcist Part 3. <laughs> there is a kind of pseudo, you know, attempted, botched, uh, and then saved exorcism, I guess, of sorts at the end uh, of the movie. Um, but, the, but what I chose was uh, 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 a throwback beer from Russian River Brewing Company, Damnation. Uh, I mean, yes. come on, you know, we're talking about, uh, inevitably we're talking about souls. We're talking about them being damned to hell. We're talking about them potentially saved in all three of these movies in some capacity or the other. Um, and besides the name, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, kind of slightly funky, you know, really fruit forward, dry, like really well attenuated, moderately high ABV, like Belgian gold nail type of thing. Um, but uh, it's got a cool name and it's got a cool logo on it. And it is a, uh, a beer that nobody talks about. I remember when I first started really getting into beer, this was like a, this was like anything Russian river was like a whale, right? This is mm -hmm. the stuff we traded for when like we were in college and stuff like that. So like 
this is very much 2005, 2006 whale territory. Like we were chugging this beer, watching fucking Homestar Runner or something, um, and just uh, just digging on. I mean, I don't even know. I was thinking about this today because I was I was trying to come up with a beer to pair with it. Do do like beer nerds that are in their like 20s i mean i'm a 36 year old man going on like 66 um <laughs> do like young beer nerds now even know about russian river like if you said consecration oh would they even know I, I don't know the answer to that i don't know i don't know if i want to know the answer to that uh, yeah like that was the shit like russian river they're still fantastic obviously they haven't gone yeah. anywhere they're still making world-class beers and like but but like we used to, yeah, saw off our fucking foot to trade for a consecration. You know what I mean? I just uh, like I like that you talked about like even when because I I mean we're not super close in age. I don't actually don't know how old you are. Whatever, that's fine. Yeah. I'm but, a, I'm I'm about to be thirty six. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm thirty three. So yeah, we're close enough. Yeah, I thought we were so, close. Yeah. So, um, but what I was thinking about is like when I first was about to, I was moving out to Oregon to go to school. I had went to all the beer stores there. So, but again, I was, you know, early twenties and didn't really know much about beer still there. I was working at a brewery just like in packaging stuff, still learning and exploring. But, uh, when I went to visit the school, I did, that's when I discovered Russian river. Cause I was out mm -hmm. West and I was like, Holy shit. This like, this was again, one of those beers that changed your life. So I'm glad that you're talking because I feel like I felt the same way, but I didn't always experience that. And it was just like, Okay, you're either going to get the whales and you're going to get the super funky weird stuff or you're going to get the most bitter IPA with yeah. the most IBUs that you mm -hmm. could ever Oh yeah, it was Pliny Pliny was like, yeah, and it, I mean it still is, but at, back then it was like that was the that was the original like in search of post on beer advocate was <laughs> everyone in search of of Pliny the Elder and, and uh yeah, so it, the thing that impresses me so much and I've I've been fortunate enough to visit uh russian river i think three times and every time the beers that impressed me the most because you know you know they're you know they're like pioneers of of obviously west coast ipa they're pioneers of like spontaneously fermented you know funky american wild ale type of things uh but one of the best dry irish stouts one of the best american blonde ales one of the best cal commons you know i've ever had in my life has also been at russian river like this stuff that is just like what people think of as like more pedestrian styles are so fucking impressive um, there. So they, I'm gushing about Russian River. Yeah, I feel like I've just went Each back episode, 15 we should, years. I, this but. is a new segment. Who are we gushing <laughs> over this week? Yeah, because yeah. Because I'm definitely with you. Throwback gush. Here we are. <laughs> um, until Ric Flair comes out with a beer, I'm going to keep gushing about this El Segundo Broken Skull IPA as well. Actually, I mean, it's just like a pretty mediocre IPA, but it's fucking Steve Austin IPA. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> fucking with it. Um, all right. Who wants to who wants to go next? So I'll go next. Uh, for those who don't know, I picked the film A Field in England. And we're talking throwback styles and we're talking throwback beers. And so, you know, because the movie takes place, you know, back in the 1600s, I'm picking an old English brewery the samuel smith yeah and i'm gonna nice. go with the samuel smith organic chocolate stout i think oh it's yeah. such a yeah. classic style and i don't again i don't know if people uh you know our age know how good that brewery is mm -hmm. they they yeah. seem to get overlooked but that uh yeah 
That's Dude, definitely I, the the peop, like the brewery for people in our thirties now that were like, man, back in my day. <laughs> yeah. Dude, the first, probably the first stout I ever had, because I remember my uncle bringing a little like holiday variety pack, or not variety pack, one of those like gift packs mm-hmm. to like a Christmas or or Thanksgiving gathering at my grandparents' house, and he had an oatmeal stout. He had uh, 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 the the chocolate stout and then one, I don't remember what else was, I think a Yorkshire Stingo maybe or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and us going like, what are you, I mean, I was probably 14, I don't know. And, and we were like, what the fuck are you drinking? It looks like motor oil. And he's like, yeah, this is the best beer, you know, kind of like, you know, he's the fancy guy at the table drinking, drinking the fancy beers. And we took a sip of it. And I was like, oh shit, that's so good. <laughs> and, and we drank that all the time in college, that and the, the oatmeal stout. And um, yeah, we drank those in college all the time. And we had friends who were like fish heads, you know, uh, and like, you know, followed fish around. And that's like part of fish culture, I think, isn't it? The oatmeal stout? Isn't, isn't Sam Smith's oatmeal stout like part of like fish culture? I don't know. I don't know anything about Is it the because, Are you just making the association because they like probably like bathe with oatmeal? They're like, let's make our breakfast and then let's just put that it all over our body. I don't know. Shout out fish head <laughs> listeners out there. Tell Let us. Let us know what Tell the fuck is going on with fish and, and, and the oatmeal stout. Yeah, I swear like Sam Smith oatmeal stout is like a thing with maybe I'm getting Grateful Dead and fish mixed up. I'm no, pretty I sure think, this, they're the I, same For some band, reason, but, I think you're right, Brian. <laughs> And I think yeah. it also has to deal with the like the organic name and the label. Maybe might be because yeah, yeah. they like, might have been like one of the OGs as well. You mm-hmm. know, well, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, the brewery is one of the oldest breweries in England. So the fact yeah. that it was like an early import into America and it had that yeah. organic name on it, I think it actually did get picked up by that crunchy crowd, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They definitely like. <laughs> there's like it's not just it's like fago and 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 insane clown posse <laughs> like i feel like it's kind of it's maybe not that level they're not like bathing in it and shit but like it is uh fago is to juggalos as sam smith oatmeal stout is to, to fish fans i think can we make I'm this a have, thing if it's not a thing this is the thing is listen if we're completely wrong and off base on this like I'm not that worried about fish fans coming and, and whooping my ass uh, over this. They're pretty they're pretty mellow crowd, right? Right. <laughs> I just hope someone hears it and regardless of what group they're with, they're like, yeah, we need to now start pouring beer all over ourselves and compare them like similarly to the Gigolos. Yeah. yeah. It'd be so amazing. So what's Meg, what's your pairing? So I chose mother. And I I felt like I wanted to go with something a little bit more like classic that was even indelicate, if you will, mm. and just like, but also, I'm trying to think, maybe culty in a way, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to go with Orval. There mm. you go. Can't go wrong with that. I'm, I can. would argue Orval pairs with almost any occasion. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I but I even think about like with Orval Day and then just like with the beer itself, I felt like it was very appropriate. That's my current beer pairing with it. Yeah, I something something uh something easy to easy to put down, something that's got some underlying complexity to it. I like yeah. it. I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um all right. So, uh before we start so Meg, like we said, took home the the hypothetical belt which will exist at some point. Does it have um, a pumpkin as like the faceplate? It should be. It should be. Like I said, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be etching it out of only the most precious metals. Uh, so I think we can put whatever the fuck we want on it. Sick. Um but uh yeah, so Meg chose the order tonight uh or actually she chose to go last, which is a strategic play. 
a, a crafty right. veteran move. Um, so for all and, of episode I, two, <laughs> yeah. And so we went. Yeah. Uh, we went. Uh, she's dirtiest player in the I'm game. A, I'm, a quick, she's I'm a, a nature quick learner. Boy. I'm a quick yeah. learner. Mm-hmm. So uh, and I went first last time. So she elected uh, Steve to go first. So. Uh, the uh, the floor is yours, my friend. Yes. And so just to jump back quickly, uh, a little bit earlier in the episode, we mentioned how at the end we'll be voting, and I'm employing this method for my own strategy. If for somehow we can't, we can't figure out a winner by the end of tonight, we will be putting this up on all our social medias. Ah, that's a good idea. And then the audience. Boom. I like The that. audience will decide. So, you know, follow us. Follow us on Instagram at Halloween is forever. Hello forever on Twitter and Halloween is forever podcast yes. on Facebook. I like how you guys are so organized and I'm just here swearing <laughs> and talking about penises. Well, you know what? It, well, you know what it is? It's <laughs> Steve was going, is Brian going to say the social medias? No, he's a dickhead. He forgot. So Steve's like, I'm going to do his job, <laughs> which won't not the first time. Won't be the last. Hey, I got your back, bud. <laughs> It's, it's a team Listen, event. If, if, in case you haven't figured out yet, in what are how many episodes are we in? Four or five episodes in. Uh, Steve's the only one who knows what he's doing. <laughs> I think so I've aged fifty years in that, the last few that episodes. Rings, sure. <laughs> yeah, you're well. You are slowly becoming like grizzled, smoking a cigarette. Yeah, by episode thirty, you're going to be Max Mom from uh, from It's Always Sunny. You're like. <laughs> That's too good. From from young spry Meg to Max Mom in only twenty episodes. Hey, anything can happen. Anything can happen. But I mean, you're already on the porch smoking. I I really don't appreciate you guys talking so (laughs) much about me smoking a cigarette. I'm like, this is like a PSA to get (laughs) me to stop. I know. it, it was the fact that you were pointing right. at us with the cigarette hand. That's what did it. Listen, I'm not. I'm not judging. I, listen, I'm not judging smoking. Uh, but the uh, the pointing and with okay, with the dad. Yeah. Down, okay, dad. Like quarter inch cigarette butt. It was the threatening motion of it. Uh, yeah, she's smoking the filters out, out there. Throw them yeah. away. <laughs> Light a new one with the old one. All right. Let's just jump into it tonight. Uh, as Brian mentioned, also, we had my film, which is psychologically taxing, and Meg's film, which is emotionally taxing. So, so mm-hmm. if you, yeah, it's so bizarre that Exorcist <laughs> Part Three was like the lighthearted romp of the week. Yeah, it was fun. It was an it was a nice detective yeah. story. <laughs> all right, don't start planting <laughs> seeds of doubt, you bastard. With with watching in the order of all of these, uh-huh. I'm just curious how many of our listeners are you guys like? How many do you have to go? To, uh, how many of you uh, called your therapist after this? You yeah, know? yeah, right. <laughs> Both of your movies ruined my night. I'm just saying that. Why would you? <laughs> I expected that from Meg. I knew that was going to happen, but I had actually seen it before. But I feel like last time I saw it, I'm getting into Meg's movie. I think last time I saw it. Uh, I wasn't really paying attention and this movie I was like in the dark by myself and it was just yeah yeah emotionally taxing yeah we're gonna need like a better help sponsorship for our listeners but <laughs> we'll have a come to yeah. bosom pillow that like <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's okay it's okay maybe we can get the the uh the my booty pillow I don't know if you've <laughs> seen yeah, that I've definitely seen no, those what is I've it totally I don't know this it's, it's an ass, it's an ass-shaped pillow 
Okay. I, I feel like maybe I should buy them. They definitely at one point got advertised to me on the socials. Yeah. So. That has something to do with what you typically click on. <laughs> I mean, it has to, right? I might be t- yeah, I, no, I mean, for sure. I like butts. That's fine. Listen, I like butts as much as the next guy. Why am I not getting these ads? As far as, far as what my Instagram. You will now. <laughs> yeah. You know, what my Instagram feed looks like on my alt account. Yeah. So <laughs> I see why, but. Uh, yes, to to the film, uh, A Field in England. We're talking 2013, uh, directed by Ben Wheatley. And for anybody who doesn't know, Ben Wheatley is very much, uh, he just, a lot of his films have that experimental nature to them. Uh, you have to look at his other films like Kill List, High Rise, uh, and even his latest film, In the Earth, is very, very experimental and a lot of his films have this nature of he has secret knowledge and he's not telling you what it is that it's very referential to stuff. If you don't know what he's on about, you have to go look it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a couple things where I was like, I feel like I got a lot of the overarching or overarching type of symbolism and I, I won't, I won't get ahead of you, but like mm-hmm. there were some things where I'm like, okay, I think I know what's going on here, but then there's other things where you're like, how would I have known that? Unless I right. it exactly. look afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and- I like this movie now way more four or five days after I watched it than the day I watched it. Mm-hmm. Like I, I watched it thinking like, you know what? Kind of fucked that movie. Like I wasn't great <laughs> about it. And then like, as the days go on, I'm like, I'm definitely going to watch that movie again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honestly, I haven't watched it since uh, I originally saw it. And if, uh, like I mentioned on the last minisode, I saw it at the Three Rivers Film Fest in 2013 or 2014 when it was premiered in Pittsburgh. And yeah, I haven't watched it since. So going back to it, like I just it's just such a bizarre film that it will stick with you forever. It's got to be completely different the second time. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just a couple other notes on like who's in the film. Uh, you have uh, Reese Shearsmith and Michael Smiley, both actors that appear in other Ben Wheatley films. Uh, Michael Smiley, he actually is he, he's like a big character actor from what I can tell. Yeah, but yeah. you're not going to recognize him immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to recognize him, but you might not know his name. But he's in also he's in other um, he's in other uh, Ben Wheatley films like Free Fire and Kill List. Uh, Reese Shearsmith appears in High Rise with Tom Hiddleston, and they both also have small parts in Shaun of the Dead. And then there's one appearance very early on the f- in the film, uh, very shortly, by Julian Barrett, and yeah. who a lot of people will recognize it from uh, the Mighty Boosh uh, as yeah, Howard Moon. I was Moon. like, Howard Moon! Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. like, it's Howard Moon! <laughs> right away, like, yeah. And he even kind of talked like him, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It was like, yeah, like, you're right. He was only in, what, the first, like, five six minutes of the right movie yeah. or whatever but yeah it was like i felt like i was that leonardo dicaprio meme where he's pointing at the screen <laughs> like, it's Howard Moon. Hey, look. <laughs> yeah very quick cameo but it also yeah he, he very much is like speaking like howard moon <laughs> well that's what i said that's mm-hmm. what my note was this guy sure talks fancy and bad right <laughs> <laughs> he's like very almost limerical in the way he's talking so uh quick breakdown of the plot and we go to uh, just basically the film occurs and this is one of the biggest things of the film which i think is hard for american audiences because we don't know the history of england as well but the film occurs during the 17th century civil war 
and the Civil War is very much a part of the film and goes throughout the themes, and we'll get into that. But during the 17th century Civil War, there are four deserters, and the deserters are partly running from Julian Barrett's character, uh, but they all through, fall through a hedgerow and decide. And I, th- I, I forgot this plot point of the film, but I thought it was very appropriate for this podcast once I rewatched it. They decide to leave war and go to an alehouse. So they decide <laughs> to go get a beer instead. <laughs> hey, no I mean, shade here. Yeah. <laughs> beer, not, beer, not war. That's what I always say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but on their way to go get a beer it becomes more obvious that one of them in their group, Cutler, has other plans in mind, and they find themselves... The scene is kind of hard to distinguish, but they either rescue or are pulled through to another dimension to uh, find O'Neill, who is very much a alchemic warlock. Yeah. Uh, we can also get into his history and what he may or may not have on hand. Um but yeah, the uh, O'Neill then finds himself taking power over the deserters. Um, Cutler reveals himself to be in servitude to O'Neill, and O'Neill takes uh, uses his power as a as a warlock to try to search for a treasure within this field in England, which is obviously a very supernatural place at the point that we uh, really discover it. That was one of the parts in the that that like, yeah, you kind of got this idea. This is a different plane, mm-hmm. you know, of consciousness or purgatory, whatever it ends up being. Right. Um, but the one thing that uh, that I was very lost on and I think I even like posted something about it on the Instagram account. I was like 25 minutes in. When has this become a horror movie? 26 <laughs> minutes in. What the fuck is happening right now? Like it just, Because all of a sudden. They're in, so the whole idea of like the mushroom circle, mm-hmm. right? And having to pull, you know, four men in a rope can pull one man out or whatever, because right. the mushroom mm-hmm. in the inside the mushroom circle uh, or the mushroom ring or whatever, things happen at a different pace. Like, how would you have known? Like, I know I had to mm-hmm. look that. That was one thing that I had yeah. to I had to look up and like heard Ben Wheatley talking about it in an interview or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So that like that's specifically references uh, just like English folklore of fairy rings. And, you know, mushroom rings are said to have occurred because of fairies dancing around in a circle. And then if you step into that circle, a number of things can happen to you. Like you can be cursed, you can die young, you can be turned invisible, or you can be transported into the fairy land. Mm -hmm. So we kind of see two of those things at least occur in that uh, they try to pull O'Neill out of the fairy circle and he's obviously invisible because they're just pulling on a rope attached to a stone Mm -hmm. and then he just comes out of nowhere but then it's also possible because of that way that scene plays out that maybe they actually were pulled into the fairy circle yeah that's what i was like back and forth about but because the reason i thought they got pulled in is because that like um like pole mm-hmm. that that friend the character they I think is they just called yeah, it yeah. friend was like kind of admiring or like obsessing over it was there and then it wasn't right so so I was like did O'Neill get pulled through that or was that in the real world and now they're in you yeah. know this alternate yeah. realm or something like that mm-hmm. it's hard to say yeah. and, and and also just like another side to that is it's also part of English mythology that hedgerows are also 
transportations to another realm. Oh, well, I didn't know so that. So it you actually get transported twice in the film. That's that's why like in the beginning of the film when they fall through the hedgerow and all that, mm-hmm. like nobody can really see them with the exception of Julian Barrett's character. Right. Uh, and then they just uh you hear the war died down behind them and i believe mm-hmm. it's cutler who says you know uh nobody can see us now you know they were just shadows to them yeah so, mm-hmm. yeah i tell you what that was a really clever location because it did feel like they were on the fringe of battle even though if you really try to like separate yourself it's just a few guys on the other side of the hedgerow like some smoke you know kind of coming up or something like that but the sound i think it was the sound design that did a lot mm-hmm. of that it really gave you this impression that yeah they were just right on the fringe of the battlefield um but the, but otherwise it was like if you look at the shot it was super minimalist you oh, know yeah. what i mean mm-hmm. there, there wasn't a lot going on but it was pretty impressive yeah so uh just to kind of wrap up what the plot of the film and where it leads us, uh, within the within the original Deserter Party uh, is Reese Shearsmith's character of Whitehead, and Whitehead mm-hmm. is a very uh, kind of uh, he, he's pretentious. He's uh, an educated man. He wasn't meant to go to war, but he was sent to war to find O'Neill because right. both he and O'Neill were servants of another alchemic master. Uh, Whitehead is sent to destroy O'Neill, but is taken over by him possessed by him and forced to search for a treasure within the fairy world as uh just you know within this field that's also just you know a a liminal plane like nobody knows up or down within it yeah i can't say like when he was like you know doing whatever he was doing in the tent Mm -hmm. that quite frankly with the sounds coming out of it freaked me the fuck out that was a super disorienting scene that tent scene and honestly i still don't fully know what the fuck happened because this is so he just kind of motions him in the tent so that's what i thought (laughs) because he's screaming they're all like holding their ears in terror Mm -hmm. and i'm like is this like a rape situation you know what i mean not to like that's honestly what i thought and then he comes out like he just gave him a lobotomy mm-hmm. right so i was like yeah. oh no he poured he went freaking you know Dahmer sound poured acid in his ear or something and and now mm-hmm. he's a human freaking you know what do they call what, what I, are those rods called that they hold up to like defining go towards yeah, defining rod Maybe? or a dowsing can, rod can one of you guys even like clarify this because after that scene when he ran out and he was just like almost in this like zombie like state and then he yeah. like dropped but there was blood and i was like wait i at first because I couldn't really see very well. I was like, did he like get his eyes gouged out and now he's well, just being I thought possessed he gave him or something? Right. Yeah. I was like, I literally thought he put like the rod in his eye thing and gave him like yeah. a frontal lobotomy. Um, and now he was just operating on some sort of instinct, but then he's good. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. that's why I was like super. I mean, I get it. He's an alchemist. Like he could have given him any number of like weird, you know, sh- sh- short acting hallucinogenic, you know, drugs that make him like super um, suggestible or whatever. Uh, but I, I, I would be lying if I said I know understand what the fuck happened yeah. in that scene because he walks out like <laughs> grinning like an idiot yeah. you know what i mean and like stumbling and then he starts like running with his hands inside like fucking napoleon dynamite and like what is like you know and he and but he has some sort of supernatural knowledge or something because he takes them to at least where he thinks the treasure is like they never it's never really clear whether they find a treasure they they do find like a skull or something right or bones mm-hmm. or something in there um but like 
then, yeah, that takes me to the next time. It's like, whose bones was that? Was that O'Neill finding his own bones? And he's in this, like, judgment area with the rest of them? I don't know. But... Yeah. So... Uh, that scene is purposely kind of left ambiguous and th there's even more theories I've seen beyond that. Like, uh, Whitehead has been possessed by some sort of demon that mm -hmm. is, that takes them to the, uh, takes them to the treasure. You know, he's used as a vessel in some way. Uh, the whole main point though, is that O'Neill is exercising some sort of force or dominance, which is also kind of why it plays into the, uh, you know, the rape theme. Uh, it, mm -hmm. It's just some sort of force or dominance to make Whitehead, you know, lead them to treasure. But uh, it, it plays to the character of Whitehead, who has who has been subservient the entire time. You know, Whitehead yeah. is subservient to this uh, alchemic master that we don't know, uh, and he's also very subservient to Christ and Christianity. Yeah, he, mm -hmm. he kind of mm -hmm. gives himself, you see numbers of times him giving himself over to prayer for Christianity, but also like giving himself over to doing his master's wishes. It, it's almost to a point of, of pitying him. You know what I mean? Like he's subservient to the point of like, I think O'Neill says at some point, the line is like something about suggesting that he doesn't even know himself. Mm -hmm. Like he's been kept, he's been kept you know shut off from the world to the point where he doesn't even know himself so he's almost like this uh you know um obviously really intelligent obviously supernaturally capable in some capacity person that has been kept like almost shackled up away from the world right. and th and that's the yeah. that's the main overarching theme of the film and what also ties back into the civil war in england so the civil war itself uh you know it lasted from 16 42 to 1651 but the whole war was over governance and religious freedom and mm. in the end it, it led to the dissolving of the monarchy in england and kind of the rise of the commonwealth between england ireland and scotland mm -hmm. and it also ended kind of the the stranglehold that the church of england held over the people so you saw you saw the kind of rise of freedom in religion um, because of that, you kind of hit the nail on the head, Brian, of like you, Whitehead is, you know, ignorant of himself, but is eventually through by the end of the film, he is his own man. He is his own master. And you yeah. kind of see it with other characters as well. They're, they're, every character is at a state of ignorance uh, before they reach enlightenment. So it's through, you know, obvious the you get a whole lot of different inputs the, through the film because you have the obvious mushroom tripping. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's a very real thing that happens to people. Yeah, that's like the surface level yeah. thing. Like you, yeah. you, the first time you watch it, or even like even you know, ten minutes past when shit starts to hit the fan, you're just kind of like, oh, everyone's tripping, you mm -hmm. know. But then as you go, you know, move beyond and start to make connections with with things you learned in the first, you know, 20, 25 minutes, then you start to realize there's there's more like something existential happening that is not just right. You know, an agency of the drugs, you know. Yeah. But it, but also they are they are <laughs> a real part of kind of the the, the power being exercised you know, mm -hmm. because at one point Whitehead just decides to consume as many mushrooms as he possibly can and then <laughs> yeah. you get one of the freakiest like trip scenes that i've seen in film just 
period. I had to look that up and hear Ben Wheatley talk about it and the idea of like the rapid switching back and forth mm-hmm. between two scenes because it's not a difficult effect to achieve no. but what it does to your brain is very mm-hmm. uh uh very effective yeah and, and i've also read like it's one of the reasons why they kept the film black and white because when that scene comes about and you're forced to kind of reconcile these two images against each other because a lot of it is pairing o'neill's visage against whitehead's but also like Whitehead reflects on himself a lot. And you see a lot of images of like Whitehead fighting himself in a way. Um, But yeah, the reason why they kept it black and white is because too much color. And then you you can't, you can't ingest everything that you're being seen. You know, if if you had the, your brain starts to make adjustments to make sense Mm -hmm. of something that's happening too fast for it to make sense of. Right. But yeah. um, Yeah. Overall, the, so the mushrooms kind of facilitate that, but they also facilitate like alchemic power or mm-hmm. you have other references to other religion, like the fairy circle. We already mentioned that's not necessarily a part of a religion, but it's just mythology. And, mm-hmm. you know, really what's religion, if not mythology is doctrine. Yeah. So, you know, uh, you have uh, just to kind of jump to the character O'Neill. He's, it's mentioned that he's you know an alchemist like Whitehead, but he's kind of an outlaw alchemist. He yeah, he's the left hand. Yeah, he really alchemist, is. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. So he, uh, he the whole reason he's on the run is because he stole these documents from there from the unseen master, and obviously he's on the search for some sort of treasure. He's been in this fairy world uh, searching for it, but he his background you get that he's an Irishman. So yeah, yeah that, that. there was a great line there was like, I so he said like, I knew the devil would be an Irishman or, right. or I'm not surprised yeah. that the yeah, devil's yeah. an Irishman or something. Yeah, I'm not surprised the devil's an Irishman, but I didn't think he'd be so tall or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's it. But uh, yeah, so uh, the f- I think it's kind of important that they mentioned that O'Neill's an Irishman because that also leads to, he ha- he may have a descendancy from either Celtic or Druidic Celts, uh, which lends to another religion of power. And Druids have like a, you know been told to have like a number of powers, like uh, divination, and he carries that scrying mirror. And yeah, yeah. He also like has spell casting abilities, possibly because he threatens to turn Jacob into a frog. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying now, this is coming together and I didn't think about this when we're watching between turning people into to creatures and being a Celtic Druid. What you're saying is he's an ancestor of uh, Colonel Cochran from Halloween three. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is a prequel yeah. to Halloween three season. Yeah, it's all, it's all, it. it's all the it. same. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, got hundreds it. of years separated, but yeah, because yeah. he possibly has this Celtic Druid background, uh, you can, it's not hard to imagine that he would seek out alchemic uh, instruction and, mm-hmm. but then also find himself like just tur- turning away from it and taking power from it. Um, the other kind of references to non-christian religion but also doesn't fit with the celtic uh theme is in that scene when they finish the the dowsing run as whitehead is you know pulling on a rope like a crazed dog that that end is 
you you have O'Neill forcefully pulling pouring wine down Whitehead's uh, throat and kind of mm. breaks his fast. Yeah. Uh, and mm. so let the devil in. Right. Yeah. Uh, line. Right. right. The first time he says that. So right after that, Whitehead throws up a bunch of stones, and there are a bunch of rune stones. Uh, when O'Neill clears the blood off those stones, though, and I like I stopped a frame just to, to look at it. Uh, mm. The runes on the stones are actually of Norse descendancy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, see, I yeah. that part very com- confused the hell out of mm-hmm. me. I did not know what was happening with the stones there. I I still haven't completely figured it out, but yeah. like the the runes on those stones are of Norse descendancy, and then you can even see on O'Neill's wrist in the same frame that he has like alchemic runes, which are different. And then like even O'Neill admits like he doesn't he doesn't know what these runes mean. Yeah. Hmm. So he he doesn't recognize it. So he doesn't recognize Norse, uh, you know, Norse religion and Norse power, the the same way. Uh, and uh, Whitehead doesn't recognize them either. So, and neither of them know how those stones got in there. So, possibly interesting. Possibly somehow something else at work. Right. There's something else. It, it, I've read that it's possible, like the demon that possessed Whitehead, to turn him into a dowsing figure. Uh, mm-hmm. left them there, you know, and conjured them, or it's also possible that their alchemic master, you know, put them in there himself to give uh, Whitehead the power to take on O'Neill, and then by throw by throwing up the stones, he lost his power. Uh, mm. So yeah, interesting. So I had I had like a. Um, I don't want to go off on my own crackpot theories uh, necessarily on the movie yet, but like, you know, I kind of took this, I, this, this stance early on, especially this was the giveaway for me. Um, I took this early on like stance that I thought that they were in, you know, for lack of a better term, like purgatory, Mm -hmm. but they were on some sort of plane of judgment, Right. right? This field of judgment in some capacity and own specifically, um, uh, uh, Whitehead, um, Jacob, and friend, and perhaps Cutler, mm-hmm. and O'Neill was some sort of like tempting demon or or satanic figure, mm-hmm. right? That was trying to assert control over them. That was trying to trick them. That was trying to, uh, you know, and some of the clues were were kind of surface level. You know, the let the devil in and all that sort of thing, um, and and the manipulating. Uh, uh, Cutler, obviously, and that sort of thing. But like, I, I took it as they all died in battle, right. like on the field, mm. especially when friend. Well, so friend woke up, right? They thought he was dead. They kind of declared Whitehead kind of declared him dead in the first few minutes. And then he woke up and was like, where's the ale or whatever. Right. Right. Um, which you could have just said like, oh, yeah, he was unconscious. And back then, you know, it was hard for them to tell, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have as much, you know, n- knowledge now. But you should assume that uh, like a learned, you know, alchemist and, you know, he, he was probably more knowledgeable than even the average, you know, doctor physician in a country town right. back then. Mm-hmm. Right. You could just make that assumption would have been able to tell if the man was dead. Right. Uh, and then he pops up and he's good. And then, of course, friend is resurrected i think three times right throughout the thing so i kind of took that as like they were all there before and they were going through this like cyclical thing because not the 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 other kind of giveaway for me was they all had 
had some sort of like sin on their shoulders or, or, or lack of faith, or they had, they had, um, mm-hmm. in some capacity, uh, forsaken their faith or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously Jacob was very much on the, you know, I'm my own man. I do whatever the fuck I want type of thing. You know, Whitehead obviously was struggling with his faith and, you know, even, you know, willingly drinking the wine at one point. So you were thinking that, and then of course, um, uh, uh, friend, you know, gives a, a pretty explicit, uh, a description of him, his infidelities with his wife's right. sister yeah. or whatever. So like <laughs> right. they all like quote unquote deserve to be in judgment in some capacity, but they all seem to know each other or have at least some sort of like deeper connection to one another than you would expect from just strangers who just met a few hours ago. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like when friend gets shot and Jacob is like destroyed by it and he was literally just fighting him a second ago, like trying to strangle him. And then he's destroyed when he dies. Like it made me seem like they have lived this scenario multiple times over trying to learn from whatever was supposed to be happening or whatever they were supposed to be learning so that they could progress on to like the next plane or something like that. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, and there's, I guess there is like a little bit of uh you could you can draw that kind of conclusion of it's a cyclical event because they find the bones in that hole and then i that's what i thought was that o'neill looking for his own bones or somebody else's you know what yeah. i mean that's what i thought mm-hmm. initially but then i like i said and then i thought maybe it was a demon yeah. or something but. but then at the end uh it jacob and friend also are buried in that hole so yeah. you you can kind of maybe draw that you know they keep discovering the same bodies and bones over the same time uh i yeah. think the main thing they're they're trying to achieve though is that there is no treasure there never was the treasure is finding that enlightenment and right uh yeah. like i believe whitehead even explicitly says like there is no treasure the treasure what it was between us and mm-hmm. it's meant to be like the sharpening stone of just kind of enlightenment from each other to throw off the, the the bonds of tyranny and throw off like uh, the mm. control of religion. Yeah. So okay, that, that makes that, sense. That, that's, that's kind of the way I read it, because you know, like at the end, you have uh, you have Whitehead destroying O'Neill and escaping through the hedgerow, and then when he gets on the other side of the hedgerow, Friend and Jacob are there. Right. And so it And he's Van Helsing. Yeah, Andy's Van Helsing. <laughs> it's like it, like in a way cuz I mean O'Neill's already a freed man from being an outlaw. Uh so in a way Whitehead takes up the mantle of O'Neill uh by being his own free man, but he mm-hmm. he his just uh his goals and his deeds and his intention is not to be as tyr- uh, tyrannical and controlling. So he's still a free, he's still a freed man. He's still outside of societal norm, but also he isn't uh, going to be as destructive. He's more for brotherhood because you know, as you see the way he behaves with friend and Jacob, he's always helping them. Mm-hmm. He's like curing uh, Jacob's dirty penis. He's trying to <laughs> yeah. You get a real close shot of his diseased dick, <laughs> and that came out of nowhere. Yeah. But <laughs> it's like boom. 
disease right. dick right in your face. <laughs> uh, but then you the, you see the relationship between uh, Cutler and O'Neill, and it's very servitude. Is you know O'Neill's constantly abusing Cutler, you know, kicking him when he's down, forcing him to do mm-hmm. work. Like there's no there, there's no give and take between the two of them. It's just yeah. you know just complete destruction, and that's why they wind up stuck, you know, in the field and just die in the field and they are not on the other side because they learn nothing yeah. They They were only in it for right. selfish enrichment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's, that's like very, like I said, it's a couple of, I didn't necessarily do like the shaking off of tyranny, but that makes a lot more sense considering the, the civil war aspect of it. You know, that, that kind of ties in some of the, like the political socioeconomic other things going on with with the historical aspect because my thought was like they all had kind of like overcome some degree of like for back lack of a better term like selfishness mm-hmm. um you know and kind of like learn to like care for each other and 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 um and, and like help help one another because like at their heart at the beginning they were all they were all cowards, oh, yeah. you know, they were all like running away, mm-hmm. but, but like at the, at the heart of cowardice, right, is selfish, self-preservation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately decided that they were going to like act on behalf of, of somebody else in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it makes ties in closer with the historical context, right. I think, the, the, the way you kind of played it out. But yeah. um, listen, all I know is I have um, developed a kinship with Jacob um, because... I have accidentally tried to take a shit in some jagger bushes before, <laughs> and uh, and and suffer and suffered the wrath. Um, so I felt his I felt his pain, but that's funny. Yeah, it was a. Uh, I said I watching it the whole way. Like my notes are hilarious. I took way too many notes, <laughs> and at one point I'm like. Fuck this movie. <laughs> this is pretentious <laughs> as hell. The the some of the music choices drove me nuts. And I'm like, this is like, like, this is like pretentious art house bullshit. And by the end, I'm like really getting into picking things apart. And like I said, yeah. a few days later, I'm still thinking about it. So my tone changed throughout watching mm-hmm. it and even w- more dramatically. So well, after I yeah. watched it, like days after I yeah. watched it. Yeah. So, so like, I, I think when I originally watched it, I had, I very much had kind of a similar take away that you did, Brian, that I just kind of thought they were all dead and, you know, they came back or something like that. And it was just overly mm. metaphorical. And then like a couple days later, I was reading about it and, you know, I felt better about it. And then like, you know, even on this rewatch and then going, I had to go back and reread again. But I, I feel like I have a better grasp on the film. And I don't know, I, I appreciate yeah. it a lot more. But yeah, it, yeah. Let let's not mince words. It is over metaphorical. Oh god, yeah. Like <laughs> oh, yeah. it's experimental. It's metaphorical. Like I understand yeah. why people will hate this film. But hopefully, I'm yeah. hoping that through all this explanation and context, that I can win the hearts and minds. <laughs> yeah, it is. Listen, I'm 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 glad I watch it. I'm ex- and I and this is a testament to it because I do want to watch mm-hmm. it again um, mm-hmm. to kind of like pick some of these things out because yeah, like you're gonna. It's going to take you to a place after the first watch and, you know, um, you, you're going to like pick up on certain things and make certain connections. And then I'm sure the second time you watch it, you kind of do a little bit more of the same. Um, but, yeah, there was definitely a few parts where I'm like, how long are they going to dig? <laughs> like, how long are they going to like eat mushroom broth? Yeah, there was just like um, it. I wouldn't call it a fun watch. 
but it was an interesting one and it was a really interesting one to ruminate on mm-hmm. afterwards for me personally but i mean honestly listening to you guys talk about it way more than i i didn't even interject at all because i felt very confused even afterwards so i mean i think also coming from a, a non-religious back like background of whether or not you guys are or not but like even the context and like stuff i like looked up i think i saw it through this lens of like even some level of like spirituality where I got some of the things you were talking about, like, yes, I I'm, I'm picking up on this, but putting it all together isn't really coming around. So I'm curious, like after hearing you guys talk and interject that, that I feel like it would be a different watch for me for sure. Yeah, It's definitely, there is no, it is not a paint by numbers metaphorical thing. It is a, mm. I mean, and this is like from what, and this is the only Ben Wheatley movie I've seen, but from hearing Steve talk about it. And like I said, mm-hmm. I watched a couple interviews with him on YouTube. It seems like this is his MO mm-hmm. is be just incredibly vague, leave a ton up for, uh, for, uh, interpretation. And you kind of take, I don't want to say you take what you want from it, but there's a lot of connecting the dots that has to be done. And you wonder how much he intended because when you hear an interview with him, he's he's still pretty vague. Like he'll give a little like clues to talk about it, but you wonder how much is tied up with a little bow mm-hmm. in his brain mm-hmm. and how much is intentionally vague so that you draw your own. I mean, obviously it's intentionally vague, but I mean like how much does he not even necessarily know what he meant right. by it? You know right. what I mean? And, and like, right. I think a, a real direct, you know, obvious thing about that is going back to those rune stones that have the Norse symbols on them. I couldn't find anybody that had any sort of translation on them. Yeah, mm. that's what it reminded me of when you said that it reminded me of the scene in Forgetting Sarah Marshall where he's like, that's a different culture. That's a different culture. None of this shit <laughs> right. makes sense. You're an asshole. <laughs> like, that's- so, but yeah. like, I, I assume that possibly Ben has some sort of translation. Maybe it's like just an inside joke or something, but like, he, yeah. he never speaks about it, so I don't know. I, I never... <laughs> but I feel like I could I could totally see there being something there. Mm-hmm. Just thinking of, like, we're talking about alchemy and talking about even Norse legend. I, I, I mean, their whole shit was partially re- related to this. So, like, I, there has to be something there that I'm sure someone could... Who knows more about Norse the mythology as well as rune reading as well you know I mean right. 20 bucks says some of those ruins coupled together probably means something very specific so hey if we have any of those um, rune <laughs> readers out there so, hit yeah. us up. so I even like I even <laughs> went on like I, I found like a Norse alf- alphabet just to see if I could quickly translate it and it comes out to I would Dorthin so it is <laughs> It's not, so not no, a, Brad Dorf, exactly, is that what you said? Yeah. Because we're about to... Yeah, there's, so there's no, like, there's no direct translation. And, like, some of the runes are backwards, so I assume that means something different. But, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't make a direct translation myself, so... I, I love that stuff, and I love, you know, picking apart little things and, like, pulling out, you know, meaning from them or extracting meaning from them in, in almost like a, 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 a mystery type, you know, kind of solving the mystery type of way. But, like, I would... I would say this movie for me borderline was right on the borderline of like doing that to a masturbatory yeah. level <laughs> where it was like like it was truly like 
I mean, you get it. It's it's an art house mm-hmm. movie through and through. Like, there's no mincing words with that. Um, but yeah, it was just like, especially like I said, the music choices for whatever reason, like really hammered that home to me. And it was well constructed, and the performances yeah. were great. Like, there was no two Ooh. ways about that. So, um, yeah. Just just one more interesting note about that. Uh, but I will agree with what you just said, Brian. It's like it, this film solely relies on is it well constructed enough for you to want to do all this secondary investigation that like I did? Mm-hmm. And you obviously you looked into as well. Is it well constructed yeah. enough to make you want to do that? Um, but interestingly, the, the film was only shot in like 12 days, you know, because, because oh, wow. like you think of how simple, you know, the set is, it's just literally a field and they have yeah. minimal dressing as far as just like O'Neill's camp. And mm-hmm. you, you see a lot of the same backgrounds. You see the hedgerow pat pop up you know time and again but yeah it it was shot just like in 12 days so they were able to get it done this is like that classic like art house movie i want to say trick but like method of like taking a restrictive setting and in this case also adding like supernatural elements adding psychedelic elements to it and just the fact that it's in a, a a restrictive setting actually like broadens the potential scope Mm -hmm. of the narrative infinitely so it's like the old like you know one man show type of thing or or, you know what i mean or like hey this movie is just two people sitting on folding chairs talking Mm -hmm. to each other and you can make that into literally whatever you want Mm -hmm. because all of a sudden everything means something in that super restrictive setting um so i i like i'm not opposed to those types of movies like i said i like those types of movies but like yeah this was it's not a light watch. No, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's no. a yeah. stretch of the imagination. No, not at all. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So I guess it, in summation, like if, if you kind of like this film and you're looking for other things, I say, check out Ben Wheatley's new one, uh, in the earth. I, I would say like that film is in shared universe with this one. And then to what you're saying, Brian, you know, uh, welcome to dogville is also a very, or I think it's just dogville but it's another film that uses a very art house approach of a very small setting. It's like, it's almost like a stripped down play. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, that's something that I kind of noticed about all three films that we're doing tonight. All three could actually be adapted to the stage pretty well for, for how minimal they are. So yeah, like a lot of single locations with us tonight uh with the exception of exorcist 3 you have the dream scene but then it's hospital and then lots of monologues so it yeah. You know, yeah it could also be a play i think pretty easily there's just yeah there's only a couple set yeah. pieces you could get yeah. it done right but yeah that's my defense of a field in england Bold choice. You always can count on Steve for the bold choices. I liked this one. I mean, honestly, I don't. I don't say I liked it more than than uh, because we were saying your your last pick in in uh, summer camp slashers was also unorthodox. It was like a new mm-hmm. movie, and you know what I mean. Um, and I like that one a lot. But like I said, this one is like I now. If somebody said quick gut reaction, thumbs up, thumbs down, I'd be like thumbs up. But if you asked me during the movie, even the night. I watched it going to bed. I would have probably said yeah. thumbs down. And now three days, three days later, I yeah. like it again. Like I like yeah. it. It took me three yeah. days to like the movie. No, I could definitely yeah. see you yeah. going to bed mad on this film. <laughs> yeah. I watched it and I was like, 
uh no i didn't i didn't i wasn't mad but i was just like oh god it's over thank christ you know what i mean and then like i'm laying in bed kind of thinking about kind of not you know whatever and then like i said two days later three days later i'm still still thinking about it but fun pick fun pick not a movie i would like i said it's been on my to watch list but frankly it was going to keep getting pushed down the list so i'm super happy you picked it because i'm glad i watched it but i probably wouldn't have watched it on my own unless i was super stoned um and then probably would have lost interest in <laughs> super stoned, frankly. i would have been like oh shiny things on instagram um so yeah you take a little break and then we'll be back with you in a second and we'll talk about the exorcist three All right, let's hop back into it. Uh, I am going to uh, go next because uh, like I said Meg has strategically decided she's going to bring up the last and poke holes in everything we've said <laughs> and then come back and, and just execute us at the end. Yeah, it's either going to work in my favor or not. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to jump in here. So so again, my film is uh, Exorcist Part Three from 1990, directed by William Peter Blatty. Um, so before we get into, because I, I do want to talk a little bit about Blatty, because he has a really, really interesting story and a really interesting childhood, and it speaks a lot to the types of um, uh, novels that he wrote and eventual screenplay adaptations that he wrote, but. I'll do a real quick. This is the IMDb plot synopsis. So uh, a police lieutenant uncovers more than he bargained for as his investigation of a series of murders, which have all the hallmarks of the deceased Gemini serial killer, leads him to question the patience of a psychiatric ward. Um Boy, that's a bad synopsis. I mean, yes, those are some of the <laughs> highlight points, but that tells you nothing about what the movie's actually about. Um, but uh, yeah, so... Just as a, as a little bit of a preface before we get into Blatty, um, this movie picks up 15 years later uh, after the events of the first film. So um, it focuses on uh, 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 Lieutenant Kinderman, uh, which is played by the great George C. Scott, and I'll gush about him a little bit. Actually, let's go through let's go through some of the kind of uh, stars first of all. So George C. Scott. You would know him certainly from Patton, probably his most famous role. Um, horror fans would know him from The Changeling, one of my favorite supernatural slow burn horror movies. Everyone loves, knows The Changeling. I think most people are a fan of it. It's a great, great movie. Dr. Strangelove, uh, an absolute masterpiece. Um, and But I grew up knowing him from two things. One, his face, and another, his voice. He was... Um, played perhaps the best, if not a top two or three representation or, or uh, characterization of Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas mm. Carol from 1984, 85. My dad is a diehard fan of A Christmas Carol and owns like every version on VHS or, uh, or, or um, DVD or both. <laughs> um, so we grew up watching A Christmas Carol like starting Thanksgiving Day, we were watching Christmas Carol until Christmas. Like he's got every <laughs> version of it, and uh, and George C. Scott is always one of our favorites. Um, he just adds so much. I mean, he adds so much gravity to any performance, and I'll gush a lot about him as as we move on. But the other thing, so he was Scrooge to me growing up uh, until I started getting into Kubrick, and then you know Doctor Strangelove and and all these movies. But the other thing I did not know that I knew him from, but I knew his voice uh, was from the nineteen ninety. TV kind of anti-drug, anti-smoking uh, PSA 
cartoon all-stars to the rescue oh. do you guys remember call to cartoon oh, all-stars wow, to the rescue God, that's a such a deep yeah. cut uh, yeah, no. we. I have it taped still to this day. I have it on VHS taped from probably 1990, 1991 <laughs> and uh, watched it not that long ago. But it's like the Teenage Mutant Ninja yeah. Turtles, like all these people. So that's why mm, I wanted to watch okay. it because I was a huge TMNT fan. And still, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at like a uh, 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 painting of the Ninja Turtles as uh, Universal Monsters in my <laughs> office right now. But he like... <laughs> that's why I taped it because we were such anything with turtles we were going to watch it and it's this like, a really weird really kind of cheesy but weirdly dark um, uh, uh, yeah like after school special classic like late 80s early 90s after school special and he is the voice of the bad guy that gravelly voice I think the character is called Smoke um, and he's like this gravelly yeah he's this bad guy who's trying to get the kids to do drugs um, so definitely check that out it'll be a fucking blast from the past if you're anywhere near uh, our age but um, yeah but he's like one of the most accomplished and versatile actors in, in American history like not hyperbole uh, between Patton, you know, the changeling, this movie, like he can play horror. He can be like just uproariously funny in Dr. Strange love, not even just the lines. Cause he kind of plays like the straight man a little bit in the movie, mm -hmm. but also like the physicality of his, of his comedy in that movie, like the falling down scene where he like trips on the stairs and stuff is so incredible. Yeah. Um, he's just a fucking treasure and I will watch absolutely anything with George C. Scott in it. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, just hearing like, you know, stories about him and, you know, behind the scenes type of stuff and reading a little bit about him. Like he was a pretty gruff, you know, bastard in his lifetime <laughs> for the most part. Um, and uh, and, you know, he certainly knew his worth as an actor. So I think he threw his weight around, you know, literally and figuratively, because first of all, he's just a fucking intimidating guy. He's a fucking mountain of a man. He's just big barrel chested dude um but uh yeah he's just he's just he's one of my all-time favorite actors so uh he's got a leg up for me right off the bat um other people in here um ed flanders not ned <laughs> flanders but remarkably close ed flanders uh plays a uh, father Father Dyer, who is the friend, the priest, um, who's friends with George C. Scott's character early on that that is eventually murdered by the Gemini killer or, or the incarnation of the Gemini killer. Um, he was in uh, most people probably know him from St. Elsewhere. Um, he's also in the ninth configuration, which was the only other movie that uh, that Blatty directed. He wrote a book early on that was and the name's escaping me, but he eventually rewrote it into a screenplay for a movie called The Ninth Configuration, which he directed, which he also was nominated in in addition to this movie was was nominated um, for I think this movie he actually won a best screenplay uh, Academy Award for and he was nominated for that movie as well. And if you haven't seen it, it's really great. It's got a lot of the same people in it. I believe the uh, I believe the original book book is uh, twinkle twinkle killer king yes killer kane is uh, is is one of the characters you know what well the, the anyway i don't want to spoil it you should go watch the ninth configuration i think it was on shutter at some point hmm. if not it's streaming out there uh it's it's really really great he's also in salem's lot uh which is one of my favorite all time you know well tv miniseries slash kind of movies but in any case uh brad dorif Maybe the most under one of the most underappreciated American actors. People know him from Dune. Uh, certainly, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, 
but uh, he's probably most known by horror fans as the voice of Chucky, the killer doll in the Child's Play series. Um, he also recently played Sheriff Brackett, uh, so Annie's father in the Rob Zombie Halloween remake. Hmm. Um, he has been in a fucking million things. So you know his face immediately, but he is really one of those guys that kind of transforms into his part. I also know that he is tied in some way to a new uh, reanimator property that is hmm. that has been announced but there's very little details out there about it that I think is in production right now, which I'm a huge, uh, uh, huge Stuart Gordon fan, huge uh, reanimator fan. So I'm really excited about that. But he plays uh, the Gemini killer, which we'll talk a little bit more about, obviously. Jason Miller, which you'll know, of course, from the first movie. He's Damien Karras. Uh, he's the young priest in the first, you know, Exorcist film. Um, and then one other notable person to call out, Scott Wilson. He plays the the kind of quirky psychiatrist that constantly smokes. Um, <laughs> his name's Dr. Temple. He was Herschel in The Walking Dead. Oh. And he also is the star, one of the stars, not the star, one of the stars, one of the main characters in the ninth configuration as well and puts on an insanely good performance in that movie um so that yeah i could not or yeah it wouldn't suit it's it's not necessarily horror but it's it's a really cool really weird fucking movie that you should definitely check out but um a a little bit about wait those uh, are the only notable characters not Fabio and Patrick Ewing. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Um, they're certainly notable. Um, although Fabio, uh, actually, neither of them have lines. Um, nope, no lines. But uh, yeah, we'll say, how did Brad Dorif kill Patrick Ewing and Fabio? There's no fucking way that happened. There's no fucking way. I, Patrick Ewing, first of all, is an absolute monster of a man. He's enormous, and this is a young Patrick Ewing. This was like straight out of fucking Georgetown, yeah. almost. Patrick Ewing, like he was a Brick well, shit house. Well, Brad Dorf didn't kill him. He, uh, uh, he's actually he he's credited as the angel of death. Oh, Patrick Ewing is the yeah. angel. Oh, yeah, he yeah. had wings. He did yeah, have yeah, wings. Yeah. So Ooh. in that room, I'm assuming the vast majority of those people were supposed to be the Gemini killer's victims. Uh, um, that's what I took it as. And I've watched this movie like five times, and I still don't fully understand that scene. But I t- obviously some of them are his victims. Right. The the boy mm-hmm. that the first victim in, in this movie. Um, and then, of course, Father Dyer. He that's when, um, you know, uh, uh, George C. Scott's character. I'm just going to call him George C. Scott because I'm yeah. not going to call him Lieutenant Lieutenant Kinderman. Uh, George C. Scott. That's the first time he gets the premonition in the dream and then wakes up to a phone call that Father Dyer has been murdered. And of course, he's got the staple like his head's been cut off, you know, so they have the staple. Same thing as the as the as the boy uh, from the you know police club or whatever it was. Um, so I assumed a lot of those people or at least some of them had been killed by the Gemini killer. Like some of them are there's like an angel band. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? I almost, right, I almost thought that like with seeing like Fabio and stuff like that, I'm like, he looks still perfect. Okay. So <laughs> I feel like almost maybe they're like the ushers for these angels for all these people that he killed is kind of yeah. how I yeah. took it. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Fabio's still an angel. He's an always an angel for me. But um <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think I took it as like I think I can agree that I definitely think it's like his kill the people who kill but like almost like George C. Scott's like mind or like whatever premonition that was of like almost like heaven, but like and so people like the Fabio characters were just like the ushers and the angel ushers or whatever, and then everyone yeah. else was just like, here, you just need to know all this shit. Yeah, I I mean I get it, Patrick. You know, like if you're gonna pick somebody to be the angel of death, <laughs> like it definitely helps to pick like somebody who's like seven foot two, three hundred and 
50 pounds, you know what I mean? Right. Like a, a giant human being to, to be that. But yeah, and Fabio, I guess Fabio is certainly angelic in nature. I mean, yeah. I can't argue with that. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, I thought this was really interesting. I was kind of doing a little bit of research on, on William pa- Peter Blatty. I keep wanting to say William Patrick Blatty. So if I mess that up, uh, yeah, it's William Peter Blatty. In any case, he wrote the original 1971 novel, The Exorcist. Um, also, like I said, the screenplay for the film adaptation, he has a production credit on that. You know, the screenplay won an Academy Award. The film was nominated for Best Pick, first horror movie to ever be nominated for Best Picture. Um, he also wrote and directed this movie, The Exorcist Three, as well as The Ninth Configuration. That was his only other directing credit, um, which that also won. That actually won a Golden Globe uh, for Best okay. Screenplay. Uh, but the only two films that that he directed, most of uh, his stuff was uh, adaptations of, of novels. Uh, you know, he had screen screenwriting credit on those. So, um, he was raised, this was really interesting. Um, he, he was raised in what he described as he raised as comfortably destitute or in comfortable destitution by a deeply religious mother, probably no surprise there <laughs> based on the, the stories <laughs> that he writes. Um, and her, the sole support, financial support of the family was from, she made and peddled homemade quince jelly on the streets of Manhattan. <laughs> Uh, and she once uh, was noted for having offered a jar to FDR uh, when the president was cutting the ribbon at the Queens Midtown Tunnel and told him, and I guess she was quoted in some sort of publication, uh, for when you have company. So that was kind of her claim to fame. She gave a, a jar of quince jelly to FDR. Um, but uh, so he eventually went to a, a Jesuit school in Brooklyn. He's, you know, extremely intelligent kid, became from from a from a, a tough socioeconomic uh, background. He went on a scholarship to this Jesuit school, graduated valedictorian of his class, eventually went to Georgetown. No surprise. Obviously, that's a big, you know, uh, location in the movie. Um, uh, and then later to grad school at George Washington University. So he worked a bunch for like menial jobs during school to support himself and uh, eventually kind of worked in academics for a while. But this is the wild thing. In 1961, he won $10,000 on an episode of You Bet Your Life, the Groucho Marx game show. Okay, <laughs> He won $10,000 on that show. And that was enough to for him to quit his job and start his writing career. Oh, damn. Yeah, such a bizarre like tie in. Um, so it, uh, primarily focused on comedy early in his career and then kind of resumed uh, fiction. Actually, really, um, his early writings were, were super um, uh, well received by critics, but not really that uh, financially successful. And then he went back to fiction in, in the early 70s and, of course, wrote The Exorcist, which became you know, a New York Times bestseller for like 17 weeks in a row. So huge success. And then, then he's kind of off and running. But so uh, that movie... Obviously, the the book, huge successes. Um, A few years later, they made Exorcist II, The Heretic. He didn't want anything to do with it, hated the movie. Uh, For anybody who's seen it, uh, my opinion is it's absolute dog shit. So (laughs) he didn't want to have anything to do with it. He wrote a direct sequel which was essentially adapted into the the screenplay for this movie that was called Legion in 1983. Uh, And he wanted Legion to be, like he wanted to write the screenplay, direct the movie, and call it Legion. The studio wanted a little more close tie to the first movie, obviously a huge box office hit. Uh, But he wanted, they wanted it connected to the first movie. He wanted it 
separated from the second movie ultimately the um uh the studio won out and they called it exorcist 3 um but in any case like i said he went on to 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 do the ninth configuration write a bunch a bunch more books he eventually passed away in in 2017 but that's kind of how he got uh, off the ground it's kind of a the, the the weird happenstance that resulted in his uh his pretty insane run um but so uh, j- jumping in the movie a little bit, not going to, you know, obviously pour through the whole plot, but um, right off the bat, you can tell he is trying to connect this to the first movie and just pretend the second movie didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> there is like references to the film, imme- the first film immediately, mm-hmm. you know, like this might have been this should have been called like Exorcist 3 definitely not to like it, it, and, and, and he puts his name in the i swear in the in the title you know the the title credits at the beginning i swear like william peter blatty is on the screen like 12 times i think like he that, yeah. that might have been like a conceit like if they if the studio wasn't allowing him to just call the movie legion then he's like yeah. then you better put my name everywhere it was literally <laughs> like i swear i stopped counting but it was like a dozen times you saw his name pop up before uh before the first line in the movie but um yeah i mean you see Damien Karras, you know, the the young priest in the first movie, you hear the the music, right? The iconic music pop earlier. You see the image of the staircase that that Father Karras, you know, tumbles down at the end of the first movie. Um, so, yeah, immediately creepy church shit starts happening right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, it, it was it was pretty. Oh, this was this is one thing that like I remember the first time I watched this movie, I was like, what the fuck is happening with the like weird uh 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 church or, or the weird um uh, uh image of jesus up on the screen oh, surprise you know, up on the front yeah mm-hmm. surprise it, like it, it, i was like is that like an animatronic chuck e cheese jesus <laughs> like what the fuck am i looking at like is that one of the mannequins from taurus trap like what am i looking at on the screen and then i eventually settled on here's why it's so weird it reminds me of kubla kraus from the Rankin bass jack frost have you ever seen Jack Frost, the Rankin-Bass stop, stop oh, motion? Oh, okay, okay. And he's got Kubla Krauss as like the big like bearded guy who rides on the weird iron horse or whatever. It just reminded me of that. Uh, and it was uh, super creepy. Um, but uh, yeah, so so right off the bat, you know, creepy church stuff kind of gets established, right? There's some, some manner of supernatural kind of demonic presence that sets the tone for the fact that, yeah, for the rest of the movie, there is a lot of like almost a... A police procedural you know steve you kind of alluded to it it's almost like a i don't want to say a whodunit but like yeah there's it's like a it's like a a forensic police procedural for for a lot of it with with really really powerful performances but you know underneath there is something you know quite quite supernatural and supernatural or demonic satanic whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. kind of kind of uh fizzling under the surface so um the one thing i absolutely love especially in the early part of this movie and i could watch I mean, I could watch this movie over and over. It's it's one of my absolute favorites. I love the dialogue between George C. Scott, between Father Dyer. The 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 first time I watched this, I, I wasn't younger, but I mean, it was probably fifteen years ago um, when the 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 sequence about the carp mm, yeah. <laughs> and George C. Scott explaining to, you know, there's a carp in my bathtub, you know, that whole <laughs> yeah. thing. And like Father Dyer's trying not to laugh in his face about it. I absolutely love that scene. The, 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 the gravity that he lends to just like 
otherwise mundane conversations, whether he's, you know, interviewing people at the hospital, whether he's grilling the kind of investigation team, he can go from kind of like esoteric and like almost playful in an annoyed way to like just I mean, you isn't one of those people like you can just imagine him smashing his fist on the table yeah. and everyone just shuts the fuck up, you know, mm-hmm. and looks at he's just like so commanding in that way. Um but I, I did I had to look how old he was when this scene or when this movie was was uh, was filmed because he was only like 61 or 63 years old, but he looks 89 fucking oh, years yeah. old. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, but he has like a teenage daughter. Right. And 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 right. he also legitimately looks older than his mother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> like she's <laughs> supposed to be like the old, the old stereotype, which she was the only character that kind of could pass as like lending some levity and i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if there was more of her that they cut out mm-hmm. like you almost wonder like you know you can she, she's like one step away from like yeah mama's family or something like <laughs> cigarette and curlers in her hair and throwing little quips out there but yeah she 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 has that very like at you know that little like kind of uh you know quirky like designed to lend levity attitude but then she only has like two lines right so i, I right. wonder if, if if george c scott or even blatty was like yeah no we don't we don't need any more of that but there's a lot of different parts of levity throughout the film though there is because like you have like that in the hospital scene when you're just kind of introduced to the hospital itself you, you have the, the the old guy in the wheelchair just kind of rolling mm-hmm. around and exposing himself. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's I forgot about that scene. He just zooms up and yeah. flips, flashes, flashes yeah. the nurse or the, yeah. the orderly. Um, yeah, that uh, one of my other favorite ones, I mean, literally laugh out loud every time I see this one, is when Father Dyer is talking to the, um, the president of the university, you know, the kind of head priest or whatever he is. And he's like, you know, what are you doing this afternoon? He's like, oh, I'm at the pictures. I'm seeing, uh, you know, It's a Wonderful Life seen it 37 times he goes that's commendable <laughs> like the way he says it and he's like do you have a favorite picture and he's like the fly like the way yeah. he enunciates and like opens his mouth in this kind of like dry joking way i just uh, uh just kills me that line but yeah there is definitely I, some levity in there for sure i felt like even kinderman as a character i i almost like as much as I could understand and see like how amazing like he was for that character that at times I felt a little slightly awkward because I almost wanted him to have like a, a little bit more emotion to some of it because I feel like it was funny and it was great and you could tell where he was coming from. But I was the same. I'm like, man, if this character was like, I couldn't even think of an actor that would probably even like have that, like what I'm envisioning because it almost felt like there needed to be somewhat comic relief in, in, involved in it. Yeah. I love that. So, so I, here's, here would be my, my argument to that. I love, and, and this is why I think, you know, he's a great example of like, now remember he's an actor from a different, different era, right? Yeah. But that ma- like the masterful things he does to inject, because he is this, gruff, jaded, you know, uh, cynical police lieutenant, right? On You know, a murder, uh, what do they call it? Like a, a homicide detective, right? Right. And when he injects emotion in the smallest way, it is just, to me, like, just, it's like someone punches me in the chest. Like when mm. he, when he goes into, he, he knows he has, and you don't even know at the time that this is what he's doing. But when he walks into the hotel room that Father Dyer has just been murdered, mm-hmm. he 
knows he has to look at both of his hands to see if the finger's gone, to see if the the Gemini symbol is on the other palm, and then, of course, to see if his head's there, right? Mm -hmm. right. So he knows he has to see. He doesn't want to look. He doesn't want to look at his friend like that. But when he looks, and it's like he just got punched in the chest, and he just does this, like, like jolt, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And you're just like, this guy who is this you know borderline stoic individual mm -hmm. just gets punched in the chest and has that visceral reaction. It's just like... Oh man, I just I love how subtle his performance is. Mm -hmm. Even even little stuff earlier on when when the priest gets murdered through the confession in the confessional early on, and he just walks around, looks at one hand, walks to the other side, look there. You don't know why he's looking at the right. hands at that point, right? But mm -hmm. just he doesn't give it away. He doesn't make it like, hey, look, I'm looking at his hand. Let me put it in front of my face, flip it over. Like he just does it really, really subtly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know. I I. I I, I I appreciate that as much. Here's another thing I noticed. This was the first time I noticed this, even though I've like I probably watched this movie. I want to say this is probably the fourth time maybe I've watched it, third or fourth time. Um, but there is a scene I never noticed before: is when Father Dyer, when his friend is first um, in the hospital, hasn't been you know he's still alive, goes in to see him, brings him the cheeseburger, hassles him, and then leaves. You know, he walks up. This gruff guy, he's all business. He's going to go in and yell at him for not taking care of himself, doing whatever. He stops outside the hotel room, gathers himself, takes a deep breath, puffs his chest out, and then walks in. So mm. it's this like, I don't want to show how much I care. Mm. But I, and he even says later on, like he, when he says like about Father Karras, he's like, he was my best friend. I love the man. Like he just mm. like when he had like he, he doesn't want to give away his depth of emotion sure but he, or, or 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 he doesn't want to give away how much he truly cares um and it's just like so quintessential of a of a man of that era i think you know what i mean yeah that makes sense and i think to clarify what i was referring to is i feel like that you know i one of the early scenes when we're seeing Kinderman talking to the team of people and he almost has this like sarcasm to him. Mm -hmm. I, you know, oh, it, yeah, it, yeah. it comes off like it should be almost even more flamboyant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. When he's like, Oh, I was talking to Mars and they usually that, respond or whatever. Thing. I think yeah. that's where I was just like, Whoa, this, it feels, it felt awkward. Whereas I can see what you're saying where you're like where he has to go into these like positions and be like a dude and just like protect himself and almost be unemotional about it but yeah no i guess my specific thing was more so like if this character were like this like flamboyant but like very intellectual detective of sorts character I could see that also working too. In yeah, that, if he in was that, a Tony Shalhoub uh, monk type situation, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. No, he. It, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I can. I can appreciate that. I, okay. I, like I said, I that that makes sense. I think. Um, I think he definitely his sarcasm is bone dry. You know what yeah, I mean? He's saying sure. outlandish shit, but with the straightest of faces and and with a, an air of like almost I don't say malice, but it's like a I'm being sarcastic. Because I want you to feel bad mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> when he's talking yeah. to his other people. Like, <laughs> I'm not trying to make you laugh. I'm trying to make myself feel better because you're an incompetent right. shit. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, that's kind of his, yeah. that's kind of his, his, his approach. But yeah, he's, um, I, yeah, like I said, I, I, uh, I just absolutely love, love that performance. And that's, that's a big, big part of it, uh, for me. Um, uh, yeah, the, we talked a little bit about the outside of the, um, you know, his relationship with Damien. And of course you see it with father Dyer, but you see, you know, eventually you start to realize that like father Dyer is kind of taking the place of, of, of father Karras with him. And, and he's kind of looking for, 
it's interesting because, and I didn't think about this recently because I never made the connection that his name was Kinderman, which is, you know, man, man, child kind of almost. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he's looking for like direction from these friends that maybe are more of a father figure to him. I don't, I don't know. You know, it's kind of like there's, yeah. there's maybe another level that I've never read the the novel. So there might be another level there to that. But um, the other thing that I, that I really love about this movie is it lets your imagination do a lot of the heavy lifting, but it does it better than any other movie that I can think of. Like there are some movies that just, and, and one thing would be a criticism of like, uh, you know, a lot of Lovecraft works, especially, and not just movie adaptations, but Lovecraft, you know, writings is he almost takes this like weird, I don't say lazy way out, but he'll just be like, it's something so horrifying. It's yeah, indescribable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's just like, okay, but you could try to describe it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you guys like, just won't get it. Yeah. It's so, it's beyond <laughs> anything your brain can comprehend in the deepest realms of horror. And then we assume and everything like, at cool, Lovecraft try, does. Yeah. 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 We um, assume everything he does is just too confusing. And we're like, okay, yeah, yeah this is amazing. But like this one, they really do it. Mm -hmm. Like they go, like, you were, we're going to describe this horrific thing that happened to you know the boy at the beginning when he's describing what happened to father uh father dyer obviously and then later on when when they have to have like this 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 description of what happens to the nurse um oh and the priest as well in the confessional like the way they describe it it's just like your mind is just reeling you know because you can't help but imagine this horrible mm -hmm setting that they came up in but you don't really see it right um which is uh which i thought was pretty pretty interesting um another really great scene uh when he's explaining i mean it's this movie does a better job of exposition than any other movie i can think of because it's a novel and there's a lot of uh, a lot to explain let's put it that way but they do it in a way that i think is really um leans a lot of kind of heavy lifting on the performances, but they do a great job with it. You know, when George C. Scott's talking to the hospital administrator about how he knows that this has something to do with the Gemini killer, like it's just, um, it could just be in a normal, in another movie that could just be like boring exposition or, or, or unrealistic exposition, but he does it in a way of like, I have this in my brain and I have to get it out for other humans to hear. Cause I feel crazy. You know what I mean? And it's just, yeah. I don't know, such a such a, a powerful yeah. sequence for yeah. me. And, and that's like an interesting thing about the film overall, because we're talking about how William Peter Blatty wrote the novel and then directed the movie. How many times mm -hmm. has that happened ever? Yeah. You know, uh, but because he's done that, like he he has already envisioned everything in his head. So he's seen it in his mind's eye as he's written the novel. So he knows how it should play out on film. And mm -hmm. it, despite what you can argue it's amateur in nation in nature compared to other uh filmmakers because a lot of the shots are very flat and you know yeah but some of the cinematography is not not amazing it's not amazing but there are some <laughs> there there's a, definitely a very classic shot that you know everybody yeah, down the hallway yeah. right so it, yeah he knows how to play out exposition visually you know, mm -hmm. as you already mentioned, when uh, they investigate the first priest murder, uh, George C. Scott goes around and checks the hands. He could have, mm -hmm. again, said it out loud. Check the hands. See if. The, you yeah. Know. But no, he Just, did it visually. So, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. It's it's masterful storytelling, not 
and, and not perfect directing, but it really comes through to me in the, the cinematography a little bit. Um, like one thing I noticed, actually, I didn't notice the first time I, I read it somewhere else and then noticed it when I watched it this time is uh, he definitely doesn't know how to light african-american actors no. <laughs> um to the point where that one poor guy you can barely like see him you know what i mean it's just like there there are certain amateurish things in that capacity that like veteran filmmakers would know how to do a little bit more but yeah i think he more than makes up for it in the like incredible visual um storytelling but i did like cinematography wise you know he does some things like you know doing the the top down or bottom up perspectives for like more emotionally charged scenes like he doesn't just make it purely procedural which i i, I think he deserves a little bit of credit knowing that he's not a director mm -hmm, right, right. <laughs> by, by trade so um yeah so so kind of moving forward um i uh, one thing i caught like i really love that the character of that psych doctor and this is a great example of like i said the guy from the the that plays herschel in the walking dead he'll do stuff same thing with the ninth configuration he'll do things with characters that just make such a small little thing that make a character infinitely more uh, uh, you you create your own backstory in your head a little bit about him, or infinitely more interesting, where he makes it seem like it's the first time he's ever smoked a cigarette. But he's chain <laughs> yeah. smoking cigarettes, but the way he's yeah. holding it is so strange, with like three fingers, and then like he's desperately trying to put it out. I think they're trying to communicate. He's got some degree of like obsessive compulsive disorder mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but uh, here's another quick thing that I only mentioned. You know, I watched this movie a little closer this time than I have in the past. Um, did anybody notice uh, in the university president, like the hallway outside the university president's office when, when George C. Scott first goes to talk to him about like, hey, the Gemini killer kind of thing. And how, how is, you know, do you know anything about this? There's a statue in the hallway that I'm pretty sure it's the Joker from Batman. Yeah. What? What the hell was that? Did you notice I, that? Nope, I didn't. I, but I'm definitely need to rewatch them. First time I saw it, and I was like, it has like a knife. Okay, and then yeah, and and like almost clown right. makeup, right? And I was like, is that something that I don't? I, I don't know, because obviously statues reoccur throughout the movie. Yeah. And in most cases, it's just, you know, the Gemini killer taking the head off of a statue and replacing it on one of his victims. Um, but I was like, why is that the first time I noticed it? Like, is the demon in that statue? Like, it doesn't make any sense. I can't make any make it heads of tails of it, heads or tails of it. But this was the first time I noticed it, it was so bizarre. I am just looking this um, up right now, too. And I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> first yeah. time I noticed it. First oh time I noticed it. And I almost wonder I almost wonder if if maybe the cuts that I saw in before were it wasn't there or something. I I don't know. That, that would be hard. I don't know. Anyway, uh maybe somebody can answer that for us. But but long story short, kinda kinda in a nutshell, you know, uh uh Father Cares the end of the first movie, I'm sure everyone's seen the Exorcist, but kinda intentionally allows the demon I think Pazuzu is, you know, what the what they they don't really call that out at all in this movie, but that's the demon's name in the first movie. You know, allows him to come, you know, into his body from uh, Reagan's body, and then kills himself by, you know, throwing himself out the window or attempts to kill himself. Uh, but the Gemini killer who had been executed at the same time, so, you know, so this is almost like a happy, not happy, but fortunate accident for them. He was executed at the same time. Decides to make this deal with the demon to be able to come back uh through the body of father Karis, um and the demon is going to give him abilities to kind of basically like jump consciousness uh to continue to perform his murders um in exchange for 
also doing the demon's bidding, which is essentially uh, carrying through with the with the kind of torment of Father Karras, right? Because he kind of you know foiled his plans and performed the exorcism in the you know the first time around uh, in the first film. So um, you know he kind of comes back in place, in, you know in. in Damien Karras' body. Um, so, uh, you know, he gets put in this high-security psych ward because, um, you know, and Brad Dorff explains uh, that it took him 15 years to kind of like slowly regenerate mm-hmm. Father Karras' brain cells enough for his body to be functional, to to be able to, to, to uh, you know, carry out the things he needs to carry out uh, in the metaphysical sense with, with the other victims and everything. So pretty that is the that is the example of this movie would have made absolutely no sense if they didn't put that in there so it kind of needed to be but it is just pure exposition Mm -hmm. but brad dorff pulls it the fuck off so Mm -hmm. hard that scene of him in the cell talking to him and and he's for the viewer bouncing back and forth between of course it's father Karras's physical body and that's what you're assuming george c scott's character is seeing but they're they're showing it as the Gemini mm-hmm. killer as, as Brad Dorif. Um, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, just a fucking acting clinic mm-hmm. in my mind, uh, especially given ridiculous monologues. Like you just are handed this insane list of expo- exposition and you, you're able to pull it off. It's really, um, really, really pretty impressive in my mind. So, um, you get a little bit about, you know, backstory as well about like father, I'm sorry, uh, uh, George C. Scott's character, like looking up the idea of like Legion and the idea of like some of these cryptic things that he's saying in the, in the, um, you know, when he's having conversations with him about it in this like exorcism kind of manual or whatever. And then you're like, kind of, where does things go from here? Like, you know, he's going to go after George C. Scott's character at one point, but in between that, you get the setup for them going after George C. Scott's family. But in doing that, they achieve one of the greatest jump scares in horror history, perhaps the greatest jump scare in horror history. And the setup for it is just masterful. So Steve, you're talking about it's, it's, it's like a long sustained shot down a long hallway and there's misdirection. There's red herrings. Yeah. There's, there's a scene, there's a sound, which I remember the first time thinking, when I watched it, that it was the it was the um, you know the surgical shears that were like opening up and locking open, but you know it's it's ice. You know it's supposed to be like ice cracking in a glass or whatever. She goes in. You get a preliminary jump scare from like some just like dickhead patient <laughs> in the room. Uh, then he I comes think it was actually out. a doctor. I think it was like an on. Oh, is that who was sleeping? It was an on call doctor. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, because he said like. Yeah, I thought it was a patient, but yeah, it's in the psych ward, so it probably wouldn't be a door hanging wide open, right? Yeah, you're probably right. Um, in any case, um, you know, that's already a jump scare. He jumps up and reams her out and blah, blah, blah. Then she goes outside. Then she walks around for a while, and the cop gets up, walks away. So you're like, this is when something's going to happen. But then the cop comes back and sits down. Right. Then he gets up again. And then finally, the payoff, which is this, like, you know, kind of hooded or or wrapped figure comes out behind the nurse and... And the um, the quick zoom after this sustained shot for a long time, I think is the most powerful element, comes out after she's already almost passed the entire frame. And then the sting of the music. And you don't see it. Yeah. You literally don't see anything gory at all. And it's still just like, holy shit. Just like, you know, makes your heart stop. Um, yeah, it's a, and and like it's a said, smash that, cut right to the beheaded statue. Mm-hmm. So, so you know exactly what happened. But right. Yeah. 
Yep. It is just, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible. And I didn't think about till just now, this is the second movie I've talked about with, uh, sheer murders. So apparently <laughs> I have some sort of sub subconscious attraction to murdering people with shears, uh, or landscaping. I feel or like just landscaping. Yeah. I just want to, yeah, I just want to note, like with with this movie that I felt like a couple things that stood out to me and that you've kind of already touched on even like with the Gemini killer, like using other people. I've, I don't know if we like have directly even said it now, but I feel like that is one of the most unique possession type uh, movies or like uh, storylines that I think I've ever seen, but also a lot we can like divulge on that. But like also, I feel like the murders themselves, because of the way they set them up, because of what that you know that they happen, whether or not you saw, you didn't really see as much gore all the time. I mean, uh, I think when Father Dyer died, that was one of the mo- more gory ones. But like that what your brain has to interpret and what it creates and what you have to like think about of what happens. I think with this movie uh, is one of the biggest pluses is that those are the two things that I'm like, they did so well mm-hmm. with this movie. And that was one of them too. Yeah. That, and you, and know, you know, what's right? funny is with father Dyer dying, all you see is the blood on the wall. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. But you think you saw more, right. you know what right. I mean? All you see is it's a wonderful life written in blood on the wall. Right. You know, with the two L's and stuff. So um, it's it's wild. Yeah. The 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 way they kind of set it up and the explanation and the fact that he's killing in a way that is like theater to mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Right. And, and his like level of expertise is just kind of like, yeah, it's just a, obviously super sadistic. So. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the one thing I would say that was kind of like I wish we had a little bit more about, but I get it. Like it was it was a tertiary thing, but it ended up coming back as such a such a big part of the movie at the end was the like kind of plight of the white haired priest mm-hmm. that that went and obviously performed an exorcism in s- somewhere internationally. I think they said the Philippines. Philippines. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was Thailand. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. The Philippines. He goes and performs and they talk about how his, his hair went immediately white. And then you get that one scene of him in his room and he can kind of sense that something is happening, but they never really explain why that, sure. that is the mm-hmm. case. It almost feels like an um, invitation for him to come to you know, he knows something's happening and obviously he knows that Father Karras or or the body of Father Karras is still in the psych ward. Like he knew where to go, mm-hmm. but you you almost are like, what? You know why he was there. You know things were starting to like in his mind. You know he got some sort of like a uh, 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 you know psychological metaphysical um, signal um, that that it came, and it was very straightforward. It was you know the crucifix off the walls bleeding blah 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 he saw it he was like okay the demon is ready to carry out its task or whatever but why would the demon give him that hint right i guess is the thing i'm not sure about yet and i guess the other like the other question i have is so so father morning is the white-haired priest we're talking about and obviously he has this exorcism background and he would have known father karis when father karis was Mm -hmm. alive uh, right, and Father Morning is like the on-call priest for the hospital that they're keeping Father Karras at. So, right, right. Is, is it that Father Morning has seen Father Karras already? Like, does he know that he's mm. in the psych ward? Yes, 
I believe okay. so. Because like, cause, cause yeah, he went right to yeah, the room. There's literally yeah. only two scenes with Father Morning, and like mm-hmm. he doesn't interact with George C. Scott until the very end. Uh, but he, with the, the president of the university, is who brings him up to George right, C. Scott right. in the office. So he knows that he... He knows he exists. He is ha- yeah. Yes. It's just they don't but, interact beforehand. There's no scene talking about Father Karras. So you, you kind of have to... Oh, you're saying why does George C. Scott and Father Morning... Was it yeah, Morning? Yeah, yeah. What is it? Uh, yeah. yeah. Father Morning. Why does George C. Scott and Father Morning have any type of relationship? Well, I'm just saying, saying. You, you never see them discuss the fact that Damien Karras is still alive. So I took that as it was purely like serendipitous that he got the sing that he got this, the, the bat uh, signal that the demon uh, is ready. (laughs) The bat signal. That's a great, he got the bat signal. He went to see it. So here's my take. This is a stretch and I did. They don't necessarily explain. They certainly don't explicitly say this. My thought is because ultimately what defeats the demon at the end is Damien Karras is able to muster enough strength from within the body um, to uh, to take over for just a moment enough to make the demon uh, vulnerable. And then, you know, he, he shoots him, right? My thought was Damien Karras knew that George C. Scott was coming there or he'd already been there mm-hmm. once or twice at that point. I don't remember. He knew he was there. He put his faith in, in George C. Scott to, to, to fix this. And he thought, I need Father Morning's help. And he put out the bat signal from within the demon okay. realm mm. in some capacity. That's how I took it. Again, that may be a stretch. But um, why, if he was giving him a signal, why wouldn't he? Well, no, it makes sense. So I was like, you know, why wouldn't he like, send him a you know a dove to come land on his window why did he have to make the jesus's eyes bleed you know um but i think yeah he wanted to communicate of the demon is yeah active. he did the exact opposite of sending it of he killed a bird oh my bird. um yeah so it was really really um uh a little bit cryptic there but i i think that there's enough you know kind of ties binding thing together where you can kind of make some some uh discerning uh assumptions about what what actually happened there but yeah. in any case uh to wrap things up because i've been talking forever about this movie <laughs> but i could probably talk for two more hours about it um you so rarely get a car chase scene it's not a chase it's a race scene with a car in a horror movie followed directly by cobras um and that's something that is just you can't look a gift horse in the mouth when you get a car car uh, car race and then cobras right after it um that that's gonna at least bump it up half a point in my mind um but yeah the the, the scene in the cell is such an awesome left turn because things are generally pretty procedural of course you get you know an occasional weird Damien Karras face with glowing eyes. Of course, you get, you know, the explanations of the murders, but otherwise nothing terrifically supernatural is shown to you. And then all of a sudden lightning strikes the floor away and there's snakes and fire and crazy shit happening. But it doesn't it it doesn't outweigh it's it doesn't outlast its welcome. It's like shit hits the fan. Um, you know, uh, George C. Scott, you know, has this kind of moment where he stands up to the demon and then Father Karras from inside picks his, picks his spot, if you will. 
shoot him now. And, and George C. Scott's ready to go. And he knew all along that George C. Scott was going to be ready for a sign, for a symbol, for, for something, because they had this connection as such, you know, close friends or whatever, um, that, uh, that he was going to be able to be ready when the time came. So, um, lo- love the ending of that. Um, th- there was a couple of things that I like still have that are like, not necessarily plot holes, but things maybe I don't understand. One of them was how did George C. Scott get away? Because then right after that, it's they're burying father Karis in his grave. All the priests are kind of watching and it's, it's a, you know, we won yeah. kind of, he says, I think he literally said yeah. we won. Um, the question is, how did he get away with murdering an inmate by shooting him in the head point blank range? <laughs> and how did he explain that? I don't know. He's um, a cop. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say, I I'm like, do we need to go into that, really? <laughs> I guess you're right. I guess but, you're right. Maybe but also, I mean, uh, Father Morning was being assaulted. You know, like no, nobody, nobody was there. That's and true. like you can right. see that Father Morning's skin was being ripped off. I forgot that. Yeah, I forgot Father Morning was there. Um, and, and he's obviously, you know, there. I think there's probably blood on the ceiling and that sort of thing. So they can probably go, okay, something unexplainable right. happened here, I guess. Um, but the other thing I, I wrote down here that I, that I didn't make the connection with, when Brad Dorif explains that he escaped in Father Karras' body... And he talks about how, like, the coroner or whatever, like, freaked out when he sat up and banged his way out of the the pauper's coffin, Mm -hmm. you know, the priest's coffin type of thing. Who was buried in Father Karras' grave before that? And if he wasn't, if there wasn't a body there, how did George C. Scott, being a homicide lieutenant and best friend, not know that his body wasn't in the grave right yeah you know what i mean like how was that not part of the narrative that his body got up yeah the, right. the whole is that's that was always like a sticking point for me is like the whole escape yeah and like yeah and then subsequent imprisonment and then like we already brought up like father morning probably knows that it's damien Karras down there and it, it, yeah it, well he knows that it's a demon i think he knew that there was a demon in there and i think the reason the, the father Karras being there for 15 years didn't really didn't really bug me as much because you learn that Dr. Temple, uh, the weird cigarette yeah. guy, had been basically covering it yeah. up because he had letters from Fair him enough. and he knew he was a demon. He knew he was doing and he was obviously had his own set of like mental. Like, he, he used he targeted Dr. Temple because he knew that he had um, he could. Penetrate his mind because he had his own issues. Yeah, just like he manipulated, like he was talking about how the catatonics are so easy to manipulate. Well, you know, they established that Father, or you know, Dr. Temple was easy to manipulate too. But yeah, I I definitely don't know how he didn't know that the body was missing, unless like the coroner's office covered it up or the priest covered it up. Yeah. Because all the priests are looking on the graveyard at the end, and they're kind of—they're not participating. They're just like sitting up there gawking, and that made me think that maybe they had covered all that yeah, up. Yeah, it's it's possible. And just hope. Yeah. But any in any case, uh, I'll I'll shut up about it. I love this freaking movie. I could watch it probably once a week, <laughs> um, and probably see something new that I loved every single time. And and I love the we one ending. And I I at the end, I always imagine. I can't help but imagine after the we one cut to credits. Bender at the end of Breakfast God. Club, <laughs> fist up, walking under the field goal post. It's just like for such a dark movie to have like such a complete ending, like something in the, you know, very basic bitch uh, mentality of me. Like I 
feel so satisfied <laughs> by that happy ending. Uh, and I just, I just love it. But all right, I will shut up about the Exorcist yeah, I, 3. I guess one of the things, and maybe Meg, you probably know this as well, but it speaks to the monologues in the film, is that it's probably one of the most clipped and sampled films in heavy metal music. Because you can hear you can <laughs> yeah. hear so many clips for, yeah. uh, of Brad Dorff and, and George C. Scott in like uh, Children of Bodom songs and uh, Necrophagia are two bands that come up in my mind that they, they use those uh, monologues. Yeah, no, I, I mean, my wrap up for The Exorcist was I, I all around. It, it's an amazing movie. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to poo poo on it right now. Uh, <laughs> but don't you fucking dare. <laughs> but I think my only critique besides a couple things that I mentioned were uh, that I I think in watching it that sometimes like I feel like it goes from zero to 60, but I felt like that beginning zero part where you're like we're setting everything up we're getting everything in order to like make the connection of things could have been shortened down and if this movie were say done like now i think that would have been shortened up and maybe more emphasis would have been on like i mean but maybe maybe i'm questioning myself slightly on that and saying that like i think you needed to know how much manipulation was going on in like the psych ward that in I think and again I that was what I noted that was so powerful is that that was such a cool way to project a different type of possession that um Gemini killer was able to like uh like possess other people and get them to do his bidding for him you know so I but I think in the same time I felt like to a certain extent like there it was so slow and then went really fast whereas I think Mm -hmm. in typical exorcist movies you like there's so much emphasis on like what happens when the possession is had going on. So right. I, I think I can kind of see how it works, but at the same time, it, it still felt a little slow, but yeah, yeah, it's an amazing movie. I, I really am not going to, all I'm saying is glass houses, Meg, <laughs> because this goddamn movie you're about to talk about could have been 25 minutes yeah. long. All right. Hey, we've got a lot to talk God about guys. Damn it. God damn it. Meg, defend Touché. yourself. Touché. <laughs> Well, you know, you guys are getting to know me now, and you see where I go with a lot of my horror movie picks. So, like, I, I, like, I've said it before, and I'm like, I, I oftentimes feel like some of the most gut wrenching, like, horror type theme stories come from things that like we can relate to. You know, I think like when you get past like all the classics, you're like, okay, what's gonna scare me now? And it's always like, what's real life? And so it's like, it's not like Michael following you around or Freddy haunting your dreams. You know, you're dealing, you're not really dealing with like ghosts in the new house you just bought, though. That would be a dream of mine to have a haunted house. I don't know why. <laughs> like, it just would be great. Um, <laughs> now, as soon as and when we fought, when we dive into this movie, you know, like, yeah, because of all the themes and some symbolism that's going on, it's not totally realistic, but it still feels that you can relate to certain things in a way because of the religious connotation of everything. Anywho, let's dive in. So mother 
is a 2017 American psychological horror film written and directed by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, notables being Pi, Requiem for a Dream, which we've already talked about how, yeah, just couple the two and you just want to go off yourself. Meg, Meg, Meg watches it as a, <laughs> uh, as a bedtime, <laughs> bedtime flick every night. It's a lullaby in her house. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, Below the Fountain, Black Swan being another one. So th- I think this was one of the follow-ups to Black Swan where he wanted to dive back into like this almost horror genre of sorts um so but mother is jam-packed with stars including jennifer lawrence um you're definitely gonna call her j-law this entire time um <laughs> javier bardem ed harris michelle pfeiffer um dominal gleason brian gleason and kristen wake so uh another thing too like notable cool things about this that i learned was that uh darren aronofsky like wrote this in five days which i thought was pretty cool and i don't know maybe if he has like religious background he like knew his story he's like going into it but imdb uh their quick uh quirk about it is a couple's relationship is tested when uninvited guests arrive at their home disrupting their tranquil existence which i feel like that's being nice <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of similar to the Exodus 3 one where it's like, you told me nothing about what this movie actually is. Yeah. <laughs> that's just like on the surface level description of it's like, that's like calling Jaws like, guys go out on a fishing trip that goes around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. It leaves so much for interpretation. So. Guy doesn't like babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> So this little movie is telling the story of a lot of biblical context, but also in a spiritual way, looking at mother, not only as a mother, uh, like Mary Magdalene, but like also as mother earth. And that was, I think when I initially saw it was like my first connotation of it. But I find there's like this duality in like the biblical stories that reflect really heavily on life that make it relatable and understandable, whether you're religious or not. So like me, yeah, like no gods, no masters. This is, this is not it. But like, so I'm, I'm going to talk about a lot of like the biblical context of it all, but also like how it's reflected through my lens, you know, and all going on at the same time. So yeah, boys, let's go. So (laughs) (laughs) I love how it like opens with uh, Jennifer Lawrence, J-Law. Yep, gonna keep doing it. Uh, my girl, my girl J Law, which I love. Girl, She's great. J-Law. She's great. And the She's performances amazing. are great in general. I, I do. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so we open it up, and you see Mother's Spring. So it's super intense right off the bat. You're like, holy shit, this woman is burning alive. What the fuck? That's what I wrote. My first note is flaming hair girl. Cool. <laughs> and I wrote cool K E W L. And then we meet Javier Barden's character, who is mainly referred to as him. And we'll kind of dive into like all the different names of these characters. But he's setting a crystal onto this shelf of sorts. And it and I think even my mind initially referred to it as it almost looks like a seed. Like he because initially and then you instantly dive into like everything's almost going back to being perfect or normal and um, everything's coming back to life. So I think if you're like paying attention, you may uh, think of it just as like a good transition, but watch the house and the land come to life when the crystal is kind of like being planted tells us that something quote unquote is really creating the scene that we're about to watch. And I thought that was really cool. Can I say that? Can I say that like if a car chase is a plus one for me, 
adults calling their significant other baby is a minus every single time for me. <laughs> there is nothing more I hate than a grown-ass couple calling each other baby. Aw, you're, you're like speaking to the romantic yeah. to me, and I'm real sad for that. Uh, baby? Like, listen, hun, sweetie, whatever, that's fine, but baby? What, do you use doll, though? Are you, like, that old school? You're like... <laughs> yeah, I call, yeah, broad. Kate's doll. I call my wife a broad, yeah, no. No, but I don't know, something about baby, the only thing worse than baby is, like, when they, like, couples call each other, like, mommy and poppy or like mom uh, yeah, or daddy okay. mm, or something no. like that yeah that this, that's literally for me baby is one step above that hey i'm all here for like the babe shit. babe is playful but, baby i don't know something about baby creeps me out okay i i can feel that i can feel that I personal preference that, so. personal preference moving on <laughs> let's not sort through my issues up. let's not sort through my issues right now guys <laughs> mind your own business you brought it up. So <laughs> I know, I know. You I'm did. You did definitely bring this what? up. Don't talk to me about my personal preferences. <laughs> Just hear what I say and move on. Don't even comment on it. You're gonna be triggered this entire I fucking am, movie. I, am. I was triggered like, by this mother. movie in general. <laughs> so um when we're getting to know Mother, the character, Jennifer Lawrence's character, you can definitely tell quickly she's a caretaker. She knows she keep, takes care of the house. She takes care of the husband. Uh, and she always is seemingly fixing things. So, And like even through that, she's encouraging her husband to do his writing throughout the whole time. Like She's a very, I think, supportive wife in a lot of ways. Um, but you kind of get this sense like that she's longing to have a baby and you see that through premonitions that while she's doing work, she almost like, it's like the wall is now her womb. Let's just, let's just use that. And, um, that we come to find out that even this space, uh, the house itself is Eden to her. And it's like this paradise, as she says to Michelle Pfeiffer's character, who is considered woman, who we'll meet here in a minute. So at this point, that I really have to note that the movie seems slow. It feels calm. And I feel like Aronofsky did a great job using camera work to change the vibe of all the scenes and like through each um, ebb and flow of what's going on. I like that, that like in the beginning, you kind of are able to relax and kind of get the sense of that, yeah, they're in their paradise. They're in this like Eden of sorts. So, um, Pretty quickly, we meet uh, the man, as he's so referred to, it's just Ed Harris. Right. Did you? I love Ed Harris. Yeah. He's, he's, oh, no, he's, he's great. It's great. They're, all, all the performances are great in there. I love, I mean, Javier Bardem's freaking amazing. But can I, can I say also one real quick thing that stuck in my craw? No one paints in nice white clothes. All right. <laughs> I don't care if you're Mother Nature or fucking, uh, you know, I don't know, Virgin Mary or whoever she's supposed to be. Nobody paints in this clothes. You paint in like t-shirts with like, the Looney Tunes dresses of Charlotte Hornets on them or hey, something. Brian, this is the Garden of Eden. She can the fuck she wants. I know, she gets but I was just like, you, yeah. You paint. Also, all these people are too good looking. Yeah. What the fuck is going on? You paint in really nice white clothes <laughs> if you plan on getting paint on it so you can go out in public and have people ask you about your painting. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, you're pretty DIY, aren't you? I think I would I would definitely wear darker clothes if that was the case. I'd be like, no, this is splat. splat That's true. Splat. Everything she had was like, yeah, she was very she she was very Chip and Diane or Chip and Joanne Joanna. What's her name on how the Flipper show? Everything was very like neutrals, colors, like very yeah. soft and yeah. 
Well, she's mother, so she is very soft and delicate, and she's an amazing lady. Yes, it makes sense. It is absolutely that she's doughy-eyed. So it was earth tones. <laughs> yeah, earth tones. Yes, mother earth tones. That's that's it's gonna be my new line of clothing, mother earth tones. She floats into to Lowe's on like an ethereal cloud, <laughs> and it's like, hey, where's your earth tones? <laughs> I'm mother nature. Where's your earth tones? This is amazing. So, Ed. <laughs> Ed Harris's character, um, he visits the house looking for a place to stay. And he claims he's a doctor. Um, and, you know, uh, Javier's character, him, as we'll also refer to him, he just really can't say no. He's just like this kind, giving person. He's just like, yeah, no, that's totally fine, whatever. But I also think it's like a neglectful husband thing. Hey, I'm being triggered in other ways, guys. This is whatever. So uh, while, like, the mother character just seemingly wants to be considered, and I think we'll kind of see that theme throughout the whole thing when they're trying to tell this story. So breaking it down with the characters we have met so far, the way the story kind of reflects it is that him, Javier's character, is God. Um, Mother is Mary, or we can refer to her as Mother Earth. And I think I I kind of like seeing her character go back and forth because I think in ways, whether or not you're spiritual or not or religious, like you can kind of see it. You can kind of see her story told in both ways. And then man is Adam. So we're going to meet Eve here shortly um, when we meet Ed Harris's wife, woman. So I felt like Ed Harris did a fantastic job portraying this like ignorant selfish character who just like could not care how anyone else felt oh man he was driving like he he yeah (sighs) he was triggering me pretty hard i think the first the first time he lights up a cigarette in my house again not opposed to smoking this isn't turning into an anti-smoking psa episode but like she asked him i'm gonna quit smoking yeah, after this she asked him he didn't want yeah and then the second time i'm like i i feel like i couldn't i just desperately wanted him to be thrown out on his ass I know. And I had a note about that, too, because I felt like that was just another, like, point of his character and, like, where the movie is showcasing Adam almost and even and even his wife, woman, as Eve, as these characters, like, who just are so ignorant and blind to what they're doing that, like, whatever they do doesn't matter. So, like, when he was asked to put out a cigarette, he just, like, fucking threw it on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you're, like, even then when you kind of have this context that maybe there is this other spiritual end of things and we're just, like, looking at ourselves through the lens of what we're fucking doing to the world, that, like, doing that alone is just this very ignorant and selfish thing that you're just, like, yep, I'm just going to throw this thing on the ground and there's no consequences to it. Yeah. Whereas, like, Mother Nature is always having that consequence and always just trying to find ways to survive. You were definitely, you're going to definitely see Hippie Meg come out here a lot <laughs> in this episode. Yeah. Like, it's the only way I could describe it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I even noted, like, it's almost like this caricature of, like, people in this, like, symbolic way. And so we meet him. He's, he's instantly, you understand, like, he's sick. He's coughing. He's, like, coughing up shit. He's puking, which kind of referred to maybe he was just drinking a little bit. But then we also see that he has this, like, wound on his back and whatnot. Was that was that supposed to be where the rib came out? Probably. I, I, mm, I took that as that that's where the well. rib was supposed to come out, and then, and then Eve shows up soon thereafter. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes total sense. And yeah, I honestly, it, it's kind of interesting looking at this movie through this like 
lens of like this is a religious like horror movie of mm-hmm. sorts because i grew up with zero religion mm-hmm. so like even um just having to like dive in even researching and making sure i'm like covering the stories if you guys are either more familiar with the stories please elaborate no, I, I, think I just did really interesting. I, so i mean that's obviously a pretty pretty like surface level but yeah i definitely did bible quizzing um, as <laughs> if it, I know either you were susceptible or, or, or were, uh, uh, exposed to Bible quizzing, but yeah, that was a thing we did. We traveled what? to other churches and competed in essentially like Bible quiz game shows amongst other ch- church. What groups. was the best thing that you won? <laughs> Salvation. No, um, cl- the love of the love of Jesus Christ, our savior. <laughs> yeah. What is, what kind of fucking question is that? Like? <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah. So I was, I was not, again, not, not, you know, not that our personal, you know, my personal, uh, beliefs come in this but yeah i was raised lutheran so we were like you know all about that and ah uh, yes the confirmation class and all that stuff so yeah as a catholic i did not have a quiz league but <laughs> lutheran is catholic you definitely had your shit. catholic catholic light yes, yes but also with some of the lameness of like other you know kind of like mainstream like protestant religions and yeah. stuff so you guys quit um, out from the orthodoxy <laughs> yeah we we're like no yons are yons are a bunch of squares we're gonna go over here and like this is just a symbol yeah but um, i don't yeah i guess for i didn't consider like uh what it would be like for somebody who had no religious background but for me like the metaphors in this movie are just hit me over the head uh, yeah they yeah, were so yeah. I, sp- I mean it was like and again i remember being the first time i saw this like yeah it's it's adam um and where's eve oh there she is oh cain and abel who's get, which one of them's getting murdered you know what i mean like yeah they yeah, were very yeah. very uh but yeah I, again you're 100 right steve i didn't even think about that um you know somebody who doesn't necessarily have that wasn't drilled into their brains like yeah. <laughs> right I was. and so i guess the cool thing about it is i was actually actually when re-watching this i happened to watch it my ex-boyfriend was just like hey yeah i'd actually like to see that let's watch it he grew up catholic so i was kind of like throughout the movie like being like hey so what are you seeing because like i said um like the most i ever had as far as religion in my life was like okay uh, Christmas and Easter every once in a while, but you mm-hmm. know, it, you know, whatever. So the, so, the Easter so Bunny I died think, for all our sins. Like all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, uh, isn't it about jelly beans? I think isn't it has it, something like, to do with I, eggs. I'm not sure. I still don't know. Yeah. So, but so I think though, like you know, prefacing all of this is that like I, I looked at, it, I guess, still in like a spiritual way of like you know, again older 30 year old Meg is like a little bit more hippie in her ways and she just cares about the environment and shit like that. But like, so, um, I think there's like, there's still just like this duality of like being a good person that I think you can still kind of start seeing throughout that. Like, yeah, there's definitely religious here. Yes. And we'll keep going. And we're like, yeah. So we meet the man's wife who's played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And I think she, I don't know. Maybe it was Catwoman, but I'm like, this character for her was just perfect. I feel like she had this sauciness to her that oh, was just. She's so good. Yeah. But she also just had this like assertiveness as well as like curiosity mixed with narcissism and being invasive that I was just like, you know, I could see this allure to her as a character. She, she was Eve the Wine Aunt Karen. <laughs> yeah. You know what, though? You're 100% right, but she was the scariest character to me. Because like as I yeah. was as I was putting this because the the thing that was the most effective to me is this part that you're talking about now and of course it it escalates which I'm sure you're going to get to but like 
the pushing the boundaries of politeness and etiquette in such mm-hmm. a gr- you know that's such a great way to start building tension mm-hmm. so like at this point in the movie yeah you can see like the 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 biblical allegories are pretty like on the on the nose and stuff like i said again for somebody who was raised you know a christian um there is uh th- that stuff was almost secondary to me because that that thing, especially among strangers, that like polite company type of thing, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the trust issues that were coming out of it between the married couple was was pretty effective to me. It's the most effective part of the movie to me, and like I started. We're using the word triggered a lot here, and I'm not trying to be dramatic about it, but like I've definitely had that nightmare where. It's a reoccurring nightmare, and this is maybe a little too much information about me personally, but I have a reoccurring nightmare of someone's being a jerk in my house, and I tell them to fuck off, and then everyone acts like I'm an asshole. Like, mm. that's, that's a reoccurring yeah. you know, thing. Or, or everyone's... You're getting gaslit, yeah, man. Yeah, everyone's being a jerk and doing something in my house or in my, in my environment that I don't like that is clearly wrong, I assert you know myself on it and explain that they're assholes and fuck off and get out of my house and whatever and then everyone acts like i'm an asshole so in this scene like i was a hundred percent uh uh you know like i was extremely sympathetic of of jennifer lawrence's character like in this time i was the whole time was just like please tell him the fuck up please (laughs) tell the fuck up but of course she's dealing with a different like the you know some of these like the pressures of some of these traditional gender roles are, are are acting against her um that wouldn't obviously act on me necessarily in the same way. So I was like, yeah, I was just like, just uh, leave, run away. Like <laughs> during that part. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I felt like where like the dynamic between like the husband versus the wife. And it's just like, she just wanted to be fucking heard. Mm-hmm. And like, you almost even see it get worse when Javier's character like meets these people because they're clearly showing interest in him and what he's doing. And we obvi- and we find out after they get there that they knew who he was. Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. a picture in, in their luggage and, and it's, so it's like, you can see him giving in a little bit to like their curiosity for things, mm-hmm. but it's still not inspiring to him because I think like, like when they show up, the idea of him writing, which is what Jennifer Lawrence she was like trying to be this very supportive wife. And that seems to be why they are where they are. So on and so forth. And, um, he's just like, yeah, no, I just don't have any interest. And you're like, what the fuck? But once they show up, shit just gets way more chaotic. And that's where I come back to the cinematography of it all, where I felt like they did a really good job at changing the ebb and flow of how you can feel like watching or Ian that puts you in that perspective of like, I I understand this. Like when things just become chaotic, like chaotic, everything is chaotic. Mm -hmm. And so like, and then people don't listen to you and you're like, don't touch that. And they're like, let me touch this hot pot. Yeah. Shit was (laughs) shit hit the fan and the people bouncing on the sink. I just wanted to set those people on fire. Like personally, we're not there yet, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I definitely everything about that. So let let's just keep moving through it so because i I don't want to tell like the entire story because i feel like it it, we can go through each thing but like let's talk about peak moments so i like the scene even when um him goes off with man as we'll call them so mother's kind of left looking after the house she's again fixing things she's just like trying to create this paradise whereas woman then is that's when she starts to barter her about like 
oh, you don't want to have kids. And she's just like, so she's just like prying and you're just like, fuck off. This is not your business. Like, don't try to like harsh on my vibe. So I feel like that was a very interesting scene where, um, and I was trying to set boundaries, but also like you just still see that narcissism coming through. And then she then continues to go into his office, which is definitely defined as almost like the tree. I think it was like described as like the tree of life of sorts. Like his office is like, this is the foundation for all of this. And uh, mother is still trying to protect her husband. And it's just like, no, no one's supposed to go in there without him, blah, blah, blah. So the woman uh, backs off, but then him and the man come back. And I think that's where things just start taking this turn. So you learned that, um, like that the man actually obviously knew who, um, Javier's character was. And we go into seeing how, uh, the man and woman start just creating their own chaos together. So they know each other. They're like, let's, we're just going to keep exploring. So they go and they break what we initially refer to as like the seed or the crystal that was in, um, his office. And that like causes this other spiral where they then don't really care. They go off and go fuck in their room. And yeah, that's the forbidden, um, they, they ate of the forbidden fruit and it's not, yes. it's not, it doesn't, doesn't affect them. They are moving on and they think there's right. no ramifications, right? There's, yeah, there's no consequences to any of this. So, um, him obviously he's protecting his space he closes it up and what i found interesting in that in that scene after that where um mother is definitely approaching them being like you need to fucking leave like here are your wet clothes because i don't give a fuck yeah you need to leave and then i think there was like the next day or shortly after that that's when we meet their two sons yeah and this is where we talk about cain and Abel coming into play mm-hmm yeah and she, and, i love that when she the manipulative nature of michelle pfeiffer's character was the thing that was most scary about her too is because she will yes. she'll play to the emotions and she'll play to the social norms where like yeah finally my husband's dying yeah finally mm-hmm. she goes no fuck you in your wet clothes i'm gonna go get it and get out of the house and she plays the he's sick i need to go check on him you know right. that's more important right. than your house Right, exactly. So yeah, so clearly we understand now that this man's dying, and that's when we get introduced to their sons. And um, this is, I think, where one of the big pivot points where shit goes off. And I mean, the semantics of this trust, either way, go into that the what was it? The older son is Cain, younger son is Abel, and the older son is kind of being blocked out of this through this trust that they're creating. So he just basically attacks the younger brother, kills him and then just runs off. Can I add how many times in one movie can a single tear roll down a person's cheek? (laughs) (laughs) How many times is she? Yeah. Like, and also people don't look that good when they cry. I wanted an ugly cry out of her. I don't know that she could be ugly. She's, you know, obviously her and Javier Bardem, two of the most just gorgeous humans. Um, but you're, you're kind of want- please look a little bit more ugly when you you're cry. Kind of- yeah, you kind of wanted to talk though, Brian, because in your film, Brad Dourif always has a tear down his cheek too. Brad, but he has a broken nose. Oh, yeah, he's, he's ugly. All fucked up. He's all messed yeah, up. Yeah, sure. He's ugly, but that's he's also not real. Remember that he's not real. They're not actually looking at him. I guess you could say that she's not real either. So, touche, 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 salesman. Well, with with the death, we have that woman, man, and him go take 
the son that is now technically dead, almost dead, to the hospital and they leave. And mother is still like, what about me? Like, you're still just like, I'm just here just mm-hmm. to do your bidding. And so she ends up taking time to clean the blood off the floor. She's like scrubbing it down and she notices that it almost created this hole. So she goes in the basement. And I found this to be a very interesting moment because the blood is basically like going around this door that's in her basement that she had previously heard like huge bang at, which so is somehow symbolic to her and she's like connecting with it. But when she opens the door, um, we see the frog as well. She sees the oil drum, but the frog symbolizing, I think there's two ways you can go with it, but it's probably more so that it's like a symbol of like the plague from Exodus versus like i also again when i was talking to my ex about this he was just like it's also could be signs of the apocalypse um and related to like passover i don't know if either of you guys mm-hmm. have more details on that um but i found that to be really interesting where again we're just getting a little bit more symbolism throughout this that something dark and dangerous is go- going to be happening and then obviously she makes note that she sees the oil drum in that scene so she takes time, cleans up this fucking blood, covers up the entire thing, but it really doesn't really go away because it ends up coming through the rug. I also want to make a note that, so we noticed that the older brother that did the murder like came back for a second and then he ran off. And in from what I read that like with Kane, like you don't really know if he dies or not. And I felt like that was kind of like a cool connection w- with the way I read about it and saw the movie that it could be a good connection that you don't really know if he dies or not he just kind of like disappears in that when everyone gets back we clearly understand that like um the brother dies and um him is also just kind of like so torn up he's like he died in my arms blah 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 he's like feel bad for me i'm i am now this like person to comfort people in their death and what then ensues is that a fucking party let's like Obviously, it starts small. They start um, the man and woman invite people over to mourn the death of their son. and But it turns into a big party. And that's where we start seeing the people like sitting on the sink. And everything just becomes chaotic. And no one really gives a fuck. And again, I, I look back to that viewpoint of like people in general that there's just still this disconnect with people caring about other people you know i think so many people are just very selfish in so many ways that they're like this is just me this is all about me even when you're in a situation where you're mourning the death of someone so i feel like from my perspective i you know whether i think i saw like with the um sink scene there was like symbolism of like this being a flooding and you know kind of being this this other some symbolism with religion and whatnot Mm -hmm. And then basically after that scene, she, uh, mother orders everyone to leave the house. She's like, you need to, everyone needs to just get the fuck out. You're disrespecting my shit. Get out. And him is kind of like almost offended by this. And she's just like, Hey, this is what I, I, I invited these people. Why are you being so rude? And she's just like, you are like, they're, they're like destroying this paradise, this garden of Eden that we have. And so for whatever reason, which also felt made me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I was like that initiation into the lovemaking scene. I'm like, yeah, that's like it got a little aggressive. Yeah, it got very aggressive. I'm like, I mean, 
who is purposeful to similar story, but this is not. But anywho, I think like this was another one of those pivot points back to this like calmness. So we stopped getting the cinematography of it being so over in your face. It was a little bit calmer. So she wakes up basically being like, I'm pregnant, which I don't know any woman who would ever say that, <laughs> but cool. That's great. Um, and so he feels so inspired that he then goes back and write his book. So the book that we then come to understand that he has now written is basically a representation of the New Testament. So after all the Genesis stuff happens, him and Mother Bone and child is conceived and right afterwards. That's how it's written to- up in the Old Testament, yeah. Testament actually. Yeah. It's like, and then they bone it. <laughs> And then, and then they, they bone, bone and then they beget. <laughs> <laughs> then some begetting yeah. happened. And yay, they bone. <laughs> <laughs> and yay, they did bone. And it was hot. I, I can only hope. <laughs> hot is Let's a great re-write. word. With it. And yay, they did bone. And it hey, was hot. In the religion that we're now going to create, like in our own in our own way, like what's that's going to be included? <laughs> yeah. And Everything then they bone has it. to be transcribed. Like the Latin equivalent, the equivalent of Latin in this testament is just like yeah, yin's or right. accent. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's AWs or AHs. <laughs> yeah. He's like done writing the book. He's like, Mother, you need to read it. He's like, he didn't call her mother like Mike Pence. That's not the same thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> he is a little Pence-ish. Let's, let's not. It's a little Pence-ish. He's, way, he's better yeah. looking. Listen, I'll listen to Javier Bardem anytime. But yeah. Yeah, he can call me mother all day. That's fine. <laughs> um, so as soon as Mother reads the book, um, like she's so elated. She's just like crying she, again, maybe the one or two tear thing. Now I'm going to be really conscious <laughs> of that. She does not cry as much as you think she would, but she seems so overwhelmingly like this is the best thing you've ever written. Mm-hmm. But as soon as that happens, he fucking knows it too. Yeah. And you know, he gets a call from his publicist and then this is where we see the chaos begin again. So basically people begin to show up, um, in droves, Kristen Wiig plays a book industry professional who spreads around his new text and amps people up for it. So in other words, she's heralding, which her name is fucking Harold in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's not a lot of subtlety to any of that. To a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. That would you know. be funny if I was almost expecting when I looked on IMDb, because they didn't really say the names, you know, the thing I almost was expecting like somebody to be called like John the Baptist or right. Judas or something <laughs> sure. like it was pretty yeah, obvious. Yeah. Yeah, but again, I think like the first time watching, I didn't, I didn't notice that type of stuff. You know, I think I was still looking through a different lens. Versus, yeah, like, no, I'm not trying. To, I'm not judging. Really, I just no, yeah, no, no. no. Yeah. I just find it interesting too because I feel like because it wasn't so blatant, I think it allowed for slight interpretation or like to not necessarily have it be in your face if you weren't really necessarily growing up on that. But mm-hmm. what I like as soon as people start showing up, they're like reading this book. People are stealing things from the house. Mother is begging him to ask them to leave, but he doesn't. He's just like, they're my worshipers. They love this work, blah, blah, blah. He's so enthused. And it, it, I honestly would have to say this is probably the, literally the worst house party <laughs> I've never I know, been because to. it's funny. It devolves within moments from like a rave. Because there's literally music and people dancing and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. To they, like, they had the full-on Matrix break. <laughs> it was Matrix. Yeah. yeah, it was, and then I, it was, and then it was looting immediately thereafter. Yeah, yeah, immediately looting. Which, like, so also let's note that mother goes into labor during this time, so she's pretty well at the end of her end of her time there. Mm-hmm. But like, 
the things to note that like my own takeaways from hearing, like seeing all of this is that, so we hear gunshots and then eventually like, it almost seems like people are fucking being killed during this time. Mm -hmm. So I almost like was interpreting this as like killing in the name of God Mm -hmm. of sorts, like where people will literally do anything in the name of God. And then cage people, which, Maybe it's like the atheist in me, but like I find religion to be really dampening to like who we really like truly are inside mm-hmm. as people. So I, I don't know if there would ever be context of that, but that could be my own interpretation, um, probably my own interpretation. But so, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, again, in the Bible, like especially like Old Testament, which basically the whole movie is Old Testament uh, and yeah. Well, yeah obviously the end we'll get to but um yeah there, i mean there's a lot of references to like slavery within uh the bible and mm. just like every i'm pretty sure like most of the people you see in the cages are women so it's also kind of a reference right. to That's all true. the servitude yeah. that uh women uh, is expected out of women uh you also have like a lot of wars uh, between yeah. uh different sects of people and like people who are outside of uh judaic uh, class so yeah the, it, it's even though it's presented in a modern fashion it's still also very very much things that occur within the old testament yeah and and the poverty aspect of it people are starving mm. people don't know where you know it, it's it it kind of like in this crazy confusing whirlwind is just like communicating in the most as many ways as they can jam into, you know, a certain amount of scenes that like religion will always devolve into the worst of human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that brings into my next point of like watching this kind of happened early in the party of sorts where you see people like stealing stuff mm-hmm. and many of them were just like, I need a piece of him, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I think in my mind how that then switched that was just like a lot of people want to say they did something but not really do anything about it. Or it's like proof that they're a good person. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of ways that sometimes in religion, I see people like go through the motions, but they're going through the motions because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And like, I maybe there's a little bit of relation that I'm making there to it versus like, who are you? What are you actually doing? That's good of sorts. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there is also like literal, I think a literal interpretation there where there are people who... Um, will travel places specifically to take parts of or, or, or soil from religious sites, you know, uh, you know, places, the Bible and, and even so far as like, uh, you know, I don't get off on too much of a tangent, but one of my biggest pet peeves and something that I just like when I really am laying in bed wanting to piss myself off for some reason, (laughs) I will start reading things about like televangelists, Mm. right? And these people Mm. that like preach, preach the prosperity gospel and all this stuff that just makes, makes me my blood boil. But they, um, they will sell. And I remember watching TV as a kid at, at, at my grandma's house and people selling sand from Jerusalem. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? On like a televangelist thing, like send us not, you know, 995 plus shipping and handling and we'll send you a vial of sand from Jerusalem or whatever. And I'm just like, it, it's, it's, it, I took it kind of as that, like people were just scrambling to get a piece of it because it was going to fill some sort of v- void they have in their life or something like that. I don't know. Oh, totally. And I think that's like where I feel, uh, think about it too. It's like 
that's, I think, part of what I think sometimes religion does to people. And I like, I'm not trying to knock, sit here and knock religion for everyone. I just think like, sometimes I see that if, if you have a void in your life, you have, you have to kind of feel it yourself. You kind of have to feel it is in like sometimes in like with them taking things that that's filling this void, feeling like they're doing something or that they're like, somehow being fulfilled, but most likely they're probably not. It's just going to be like another token well, to make them feel like, like that is. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, it's something to, 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 they have a void and somebody's going to give them something to fill it. Right. Right. So right. like that's, that's unfortunately, I think, and again, not saying for everyone, but a lot of these people, especially like predatory religious figures, like the televangelist types and stuff like that, they absolutely um, are looking to take advantage of vulnerable pe- vulnerable people who are looking right. for something because of trauma, because of whatever that's happening in their life. They will, if if they think there is a need, boy, they will they will fill it and take your money for yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, and this is my PSA <laughs> yeah. about religion. Yeah, sure. we're going in a different direction from Camp Slashers. Uh, <laughs> that that much is determined. Yeah, we're getting but, es- we're getting esoteric yeah. here. Look, you voted for it. <laughs> yeah, you sons of bitches, you um, got what yeah. you deserve. So moving on, those are just some of my few takeaways from the party of sorts. So anywho, finally, him, he fucking Javier's character gets J Law the fuck out of there because clearly he's like you're in labor holy shit what the fuck let's get up to my office whatever all right she has the motherfucking baby and she's just still like begging and pleading for him to just understand that like this this something's wrong here like you need to ask them to leave but he doesn't because he's still so obsessed with it they're this in like um like worshipers but like I, I think in my mind too when i'm hearing that and like watching it i was like there's still now this like narcissism that i see within like this character of him yeah. of sorts um but anywho so he doesn't she has the baby and now he, because he's hearing that the worshipers want to see the baby or maybe he just wants to show this baby off to them of sorts um she's still like no no absolutely not and what happens she passes out and he takes the baby and, and like in the meantime, they're giving them gifts and stuff like that. Again, I'm assuming symbolism from like all the different, like, Ooh, baby in the manger mm-hmm. type stuff. Again, I'm sounding like super <laughs> assholey about like, Oh, they're giving them gifts. <laughs> but anyhow, so this baby is clearly Jesus. So if we haven't caught on yet Mm -hmm. now, when mother wakes up and she realizes this is like split second, she falls asleep, baby's gone. She's freaking out. She's going through the, the crowd of people and she comes down and they're eating the fucking baby. (laughs) Yeah, it was bad. I, I honestly felt like that was such a brutal thing, you know, and I'm not a parent but I am still totally capable of empathizing yeah. that like if I was seeing my child, Ian, I would probably go Rambo on everyone, but also sidebar body of Christ. Let's do this. Yeah. It was very much like, yeah, the baby Jesus, you know, and it was, it was God gives his you know son to humanity. They promptly kill him. 
and completely misinterpret everything he was there for. And now, right. now they are literally eating his flesh. So it's this like transubstantiation, you know, kind of literal interpretation of transubstantiation. And I'll ask you guys this question too, because like the next scene being like Mary being called a slut, she's called a whore, she's beating the fuck up. Mm -hmm. um, I had asked my ex about like his, like what, are, what do you learn about Mary after she has the baby? Because me as like from an outsider, I'm like, you don't hear anything. Like nothing happens. Yeah. Yeah. There's really not much. Um, and I think you, and it's not anything I've read, but I think if you, there are, other Gnostic texts that are separate from the Bible. So you, you have a lot of, um, uh, like the book of Thomas, uh, even Mary Magdalene, uh, supposedly has her own, uh, scripture and Testament that she's written, but they're not things that are included in the traditional Bible. So you have to kind of seek it out, but I think you do get more, uh, from that. But yeah, as far as Mary, the mother, you don't, uh, you barely ever see them again. There is a, yeah. uh, this is a completely different, like, so I started listening to this a, a while ago. Um, and this is a great thing to kind of go through some of the, like all those, like, what do they call them? Like apocryphal writings or whatever it means. Basically all the like adjacent books of the Bible, um, that, uh, I, I kind of started going through a podcast that, that reads through all those, the ones that like basically didn't make the cut right into the Bible. And there is an enormous amount of like, like explanation as to, you know, whether like it's, it's some of the context that you have to read between the lines in the Bible to get exist. They just kind of didn't make the, the direct, you know, the, the final cut, you know? Um, but yeah, there's also ones right. where like that were left out because you, you know, there's no record of like Jesus, between babyhood and like adulthood 30 years right. old or but whatever then there yeah. is like there yeah. is one text out there i believe that like makes reference to him as a child and like i think he like kills another kid but brings them back to life but they yep. left that yep. out because they just don't even want to show the fallibility of christ like killing somebody so yeah yep yeah, there's a lot of that. So he's pretty much just like a 30-year-old dude living with his mom. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> perhaps. His homies. Perhaps. Yeah. I've dated that guy. He's terrible. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot that speaks to, like Javier Bardem's character, like making the decision to take the baby from the mother when he goes out. Like, I one thing I did like is they were did not pull punches regarding the how do I put it kind of like the selfish, maybe self aggrandizing nature of like God's patriarchy, mm -hmm. I guess is a way to put it. Sure, like they sure. do, it's very subtle. They do not pull any punches on it. They're like, yeah, he is addicted to being praised. Right. And he oh, yeah. will do things uh, illogical against his best interest against the best interest of 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 his followers of his loved ones whatever in service of his uh self-aggrandizing mm -hmm. nature mm -hmm. yeah yeah and absolutely it, it also has that i hate it but i don't i hate it but i know it but he had it has mm -hmm. that nature because i guess to just jump to the end you know he continues his work so mm -hmm. he has a he has a plan right. he has an end game and just nobody else mm -hmm. knows what it is 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And, or, and I almost took right. it as like, and he'll keep trying over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. He'll just keep going. He'll just keep trying. And he can't like the, you know, when, whenever they, um, have sex and she gets pregnant, he had, I mean, even in being, uh, you know, all knowing he has to have known that that is what's ultimately going to happen. Mm -hmm. Them having right. sex is going to result in her getting pregnant, which is ultimately going to result in her demise in some capacity. Right. Right. Um, so like, but he can't control what? himself and he keeps slipping up. So for that reason, he just it's can almost, start it's over. It's always this reset. And that's where like, I feel like what's just interesting about how it ends is like, <laughs> she's pretty much just like, fuck this shit. I'm running to the basement. Let's blow this house up. And you basically start from the beginning of mm -hmm. again, you have another scene of her burning alive of sorts mm -hmm. and him putting the crystal back in its place and starting again and starting anew and like creating like, uh, planting the seed all over again yeah. in hopes that he can do better. And you can almost have that sense. Like at the end, he's just like, he knows he mm -hmm. fucked up mm -hmm. and now he needs to try again. But then he, but the selfishness still comes out because it's like, yeah. I fucked up. I, I admit it, but I don't take responsibility because I'm still going to come back to you because I need something from you to start right. over. So but it's not the same person every time either, which I found was interesting that I don't think I totally noticed in the first yeah, time. I there was watched like an this. uncanny valley and thing with, uh, yeah, with her. At it the was end. just a different woman. So it's well, not I feel like, like it was, it was her, but they long. just changed it slightly. Is that true? Yeah, I think, no, no, I think it's a different, different woman. Oh really? Like, I thought they I, just kind of like, enough, yeah, I looked it up enough that it's a different actor that played that character and oh, i was okay. just like wow you're a different person so almost like women are always blamed i think in religion and all like all the time like somehow yeah. women are like this succubus sort well of like she's that's too like, tempting he can't mm -hmm. resist yes. and that's what yeah. and so, so let it's me her try. fault yeah. yeah let me like maybe maybe if we do this again a different woman will fucking uh, i took better. that as almost like a and again might be a little bit of a stretch but i almost took that as like a um like an analogy for uh for for like climate change almost or something like that where it's like yeah. uh god will start over on a different plane on a different planet on a mm -hmm. whatever yeah so th this is scorched earth right right um yeah. but i can start over because i'm god and as long as nature gives me a little crack maybe it's 10 million years later, 100 million years later, but I'll start over. It'll just take some time uh, to build everything back up and Mother Nature will eventually help me. So like humanity is always destined to destroy itself, um, you right. know, be it through war, climate change, whatever. But eventually Mother Nature and eventually Mother Nature will push the self-destruct button. And but but God will wait until she's not mad at him anymore to start over kind of in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm being right. a little and bit. I, I think that's where yeah. the duality of it all too is like yeah there's like i talked about duality as like the spiritual but i think like in reading more about it aronofsky definitely had intentions of talking about this movie as relation to like climate change and mother earth mm -hmm. and whatnot but i think he almost told it through this lens of these biblical characters that more people could even understand yeah and so i i definitely could see that as well yeah the the, the thing that it like left me with was like, what is the takeaway? And again, it doesn't have to be distilled down to a takeaway, but like for whatever reason, that's where my brain was trying to trying to decipher. So I was like, what does this leave us with? Like, what is what is he trying to say about God? I um, is it that God is God is like good at inspiring 
but not good at leading. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so he's selfish. He'll always create this environment to satisfy his own, you know, vanity. Um, but, you know, but but they never really the only they never really give humanity a chance. So, like, I was waiting for that, like, be your own God, be your own leader message or something like that. But it never mm-hmm. really comes. The only thing I notice is they do take care to show that humanity isn't 100% bad. But the only time I saw that is when that soldier, I don't know if it was a soldier, it was a cop or whatever, right. who comes in and tries quickly to, to right. save her. He's like, where are you? Like, I'm in here. I'm on a mission. Oh, wait, no, this woman needs my help. I'm going to help her. But he quickly gets killed. So I like, almost, I almost feel like that, like my takeaway is like, it's not necessarily like, humanity is bad but i feel like it's almost like humanity you have one chance and that mother nature will continually regrow itself Mm -hmm. and will continually come back like the only thing that will ever persist is nature Mm -hmm. and at any given point if we as people fuck up and we continue to fuck up we're the ones that are gonna end and that was i think that was one of my biggest takeaways from Mm -hmm. it and I think it could totally be told in like this biblical sense, though, too. Sometimes. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that as as a message. And I think I think that would be a good. And again, it doesn't have to have a moral, you know, you walk away from it. So I'm, I'm not trying to like slam. But around, it is a movie around. that kind of does, though. I it think, seems like way. it should. But yeah, but I, I don't think I'm kind of slamming around peg in a square hole here. But like what like human humanity is never a character. You know what I mean? God's a character. Mother Nature is a character. Of course, the the people that are represent the biblical allegory are characters. But h- humanity is never a character. Humanity is like a setting. You know, there's like a set dressing um, that is decidedly negative. Like humanity is the environment that she is dealing with. So I yeah. guess you could say it's like a role reversal in that sense. But it never, to me, it never gives a not an out that's not the right word but it never gives humanity a um a chance for redemption or even a lesson to be learned unless it's just a purely cautionary one you know what i mean yeah Yeah, that's interesting well that was what i had on that movie in a positive note which i learned um in my research and like trying to learn more about it is that with the movie they did do a replica of rosemary's baby which i thought was pretty cool for the poster mm. oh with that with the face looking up thing yeah yeah no i didn't notice that I I, that was cool that was pretty cool yeah um besides that yeah um, well <laughs> yeah it, it's like so so i didn't dislike the movie I like I like I liked it over. I thought it was fine. I really liked the performances. I think the 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 Jennifer Lawrence and and Javier Bardem and everybody like d- did as much with it as as they could. I do feel like, and I didn't know this going in, and I'm not trying to be like hypercritical here, but I don't know a bunch about Darren Aronofsky. I do know that he is the kind of director that takes things and turns it up to eleven. Like he's all about turning the fucking volume up to 11 and breaking the knob off, you know? So sure. like it almost just was to me like he tr- he had this concept that was this like metaphorical, almost like art house type of film, but he couldn't not 
Arnosky it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Where like, yeah, he he just like he he try. It's like if you know, and this is a this is unfair, but like it, I I put in my notes, it's like if Michael Bay made an art house film. You know what I mean? Like it's just the 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 subtleties because you the, this movie overall the perform like I said performances were fantastic, but in contrast to a field in England, it is it, it's just like. It's so yeah. heavy handed. There's no subtlety. It beats it's, you over the head. That's right. I have a friend yeah. from uh, film school, yeah. and they have a podcast, of course, because everybody has a podcast. Uh, but he, <laughs> right, right. Uh, he was reviewing this film, and it, it's what led me to not watch it when it first came out. But he was so mad mm-hmm. at it, and he's in like he referred to Aronofsky as a pseudo intellectual. Oh, because, that's a great. So, <laughs> yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I yeah. 100% agree. Yeah, but it's because, <laughs> like, anytime he does anything metaphorical, and I've already stated before, like, I, I didn't like Requiem for a Dream because it just felt like a big yeah. PSA. And this felt like edgy Bible school to me. I did. I yeah. It felt mm. like I felt like we were one step away from Kirk Cameron walking on screen and like yeah, doing some sort of like uh, uh, you know lesson or moral type of thing. I I think if I if I didn't know Darren Aronofsky before this, I think I would have given it a little bit more of a chance. Or, or again, I'm I'm not trying to make it seem like I didn't didn't like it or I'm like hated it or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but. This inspired, you know, seeing this movie and wanting to go out. Like I, like I said, I watched some Ben Wheatley interviews. I watched some Darren Aronofsky interviews. And I never have watched him, watched him. I never heard him speak in 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 person before, alive before. And he just, it's kind of like because I, I read a lot of people saying like pulling a lot of deeper meaning out of this film, which I liked, and I think we did mm-hmm. a little, we did a little bit of that just now. But then when I hear the director talk about it. It reminds me of um, when we were talking about Sleepaway Camp and we were like, are there deeper themes here? We can't really tell. But then we were like, does the guy who leaves the mic, leaves the boom mic in the shot right. have the foresight <laughs> to do those other things? And in my mind, it's like, does Aronofsky, who when I hear him speak, he 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 drives me nuts <laughs> when I hear him speak. Did, does he really have the like, I feel like the performances were great. You know, the cinematography was good. Like, it's a polished, good, well-done professional right. film with really, really talented people. But I feel like some people are giving him too much credit for some things that maybe happened mm-hmm. incidentally. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm not trying to be too harsh right. or anything like that. Um, I'm crying right now, guys. <laughs> no, listen, this is what we're here for. We're here but, to argue about the movies. Um, but here and, to make and, me cry. And, that's, and no. that's the other thing is like, even though I don't, I didn't particularly care for this one or Requiem for a Dream. I think Black Swan's really well done, and also The Wrestler is really well done. The Wrestler's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I never the saw. The Wrestler's great. Yeah, I haven't seen. I have not seen um, Black Swan, but I've heard you know similar things. Like I said, going to take the the kind of trauma stuff up to a Eleven, um, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of that's kind of his his mo, right? He's gonna yeah. he's he's trying to turn things up to eleven and really and and here's here's what I would have liked more about this movie because I thought there were super effective parts the 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 building tension around the yeah the politeness and the discourse within the house of them pushing boundaries and stuff like that i thought was generally like genuinely effective and Mm -hmm. and stuck with me in a lot of ways but when shit went crazy which it did um i wish i i I almost wish he would have been 
I almost feel like all these biblical allegories and stuff like that are almost disingenuous. If he would have yeah. just taken the approach of like almost an old school, like exploitation type filmmaker and said, watch this, it's going to be some fucked up shit. You're never going to forget it. You can't, this is intense and just played it up like that because some, some of, some of the trailers mm-hmm. were kind of like that. I watched some of the trailers. They were kind of sure. like hard hitting fast cut. Hey, this is extreme trailers. I think I would have been like, yeah, you're doing it for what it is, you know, but then when I hear him talk about it and talk about how he's trying to tell this grandiose story of the human exist of human existence and all this stuff, I'm like, but I don't know if you have the subtlety or the scope to do something like that. You know what I mean? Um, again, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm being hypercritical, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, like he he's great with human drama. Mm-hmm. But he's fucking terrible when it comes to messages or like deeper meaning. Yeah, like if this the, was just a story about a few people and it was like a train spotting type of story and yeah. you just go extreme with it and just talk about that human drama, that'd be great. But yeah. Don't, and, and don't try to give it as make it as grand as you did, you know? Yeah. And that's what's great about the wrestler is it, it doesn't have to really have much more of a grander meaning. It's a story of a person who's like a broken person. Yeah. And, you know, the drama between uh, uh, uh Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei is great. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a great movie that way. But like anytime he tries to do something bigger. Yeah. Scenes <laughs> like scenes like uh, in the wrestler where, where he's working at the deli. Mm-hmm. Like that is such an effective scene. But it's a it's it's a tight, personal, small scale scene like that, 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 that human. Yeah, that human drama is where he he absolutely excels. Yeah. Yeah. If they would have just taken this movie and and turned it into like a strangers esque or like cultish type of thing where there's mm-hmm. these people who are kind of stalking the husband, you know, Javier Bardem's character and his his vanity makes them susceptible. And you know what? You can keep some of that biblical stuff in there if you want. But if you made it more grounded, it had the potential to be really great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think you and you may just come down to like removing that very blatant early stuff with Ed Harris and Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer of yeah. the obvious Adam Eve Cain and Abel story. And give them a driveway with a car, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just make it a little bit more realistic. I get it. It's supposed to be the Garden of Eden. There's nowhere to go. I get it. But like, yeah. if they would have just been, if he would have just been more subtle with those things and made them supporting aspects into, instead of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have made all, all the difference, but, uh, he's also a super celebrated film <laughs> you know, director. Right. And, yeah, you know, sure. He's I'm, a millionaire. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm a dipshit drinking, uh, drinking pen dark and talking about it, which he's, you know. he's, he's a millionaire married to J-Law. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. <laughs> right. Are they married? I didn't even know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if they got married before this film or after, but I'm pretty sure. I Googled I knew they married. did have a, a some sort of relationship oh. yeah, of, of romantic relationship, but I'm here for the, I'm here for the <laughs> actor drama. Yeah, I, I overall, like I said, I, I liked it. I would say the other thing, again, I wrote this down, I already alluded to, probably could have been at one point I looked at, at the runtime and I was like, how is there 26 minutes left in this movie? <laughs> but yeah. They filled it out. They did fill it out. Yeah. I mean, there was plenty yeah. to happen at the end. Oh yeah, yeah. Like when it gets when it's. All right, I am done. <laughs> how terrible! It's not terrible. It's not terrible at all. I just yeah. I, 
What do you? What do you guys you just want me to go for your? <laughs> Listen, I'm playing. I'm Meg playing for keeps, Meg. Where all of a sudden Peckerhead Megs? All of a sudden Peckerhead Megs against the ropes. Oh. <laughs> no, but I feel like you guys all have fair points, and I think you're coming from it from a different perspective, and that's and that's I think good about coming away because I think coming at it from like a religious religious perspective i think it does change the dynamic because of how it yeah. Yeah. yeah we no, grew we, up with this shit and had it beaten into so, our heads yeah, we're tired of it <laughs> i literally i was i was made no, I to it. study this and then answer quiz questions regarding it and if not i would have been shamed i lost sunday mornings and Aww. saturday mornings the class oh yeah Sucks. and wednesday thursday nights i had to go in the evening at one point it was like a three four day a week thing so Ew. yeah Ew. You guys want to know what I did on Watch Sunday cartoon. mornings? Yeah, I Watch well, cartoons. I wish I wish Fuck I would. Yeah, I Not that it, yeah, this wasn't something that was like all my entire childhood, but yeah, there was definitely periods of time, years where my parents leaned into it a little bit more. So you know, we were we were there and was doing my confirmation classes and all that stuff. But yeah, if it's a part of your life, um, I can see it's different. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. now that we're wrapping it up, D- did either of you guys back down? No. Or do we need to take this to the streets? Well, I think we can go second choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're all. I think we're all sticking. Well, okay. unless you're switching. No, no, I'm an, I'm a switch hitter. I'm a switch hitter here. Let's do this. I I mean I feel like after watching all three, I I appreciate it. I think I'm going with Exorcist three because I appreciated mm. so many things mm. about it. Mm. 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 That so I did like I think even like while like leading up to this I did I still like Mother I think it's gonna be but like I think when we're talking about this topic specifically I I could see so many amazing things about Field in England and especially after hearing you guys talk about it I could I can understand things even a little clearer but I still feel like if we're talking classics favorites like really good representation of the j- subgenre I'm I definitely am going with Exorcist three I. Dig it. <laughs> and I'm getting... I mean, clearly that's two against three, but like, I mean, Steve, I mean, what about yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm going to stick with the field of England, uh, field in England as my main pick, but if we were doing second choices, I would have went Exorcist 3 just because it's a, it's, a, it's a much more interesting film to me um, as far as like the way it's made, the performances. I, I think, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but George C. Scott fucking tops everybody. Like every, like everybody from all three films. Yeah, he's just, so good. He, just he, the way he <laughs> moves from subtlety to like over the top anger yeah. to just like spitting rage at the yeah. demon. Like yeah. it's amazing. I would say I would argue, and as much of a George C. Scott fan as I am, Har- Javier Bardem can do that too. He's mm-hmm. fucking brilliant. He's so he's so good. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I I'm gonna stick with Exorcist. Exorcist 3, I love that movie. Um, I switched dramatically because I've seen Mother before. This was the second time I watched Mother. Um, The first time, I don't think I was paying super close attention. I think it was one of those things like, I can't remember where I saw it. It wasn't in the theater. I don't think it was on a plane, but it was definitely like on in the background a little bit. So I don't think I watched as closely as I definitely didn't watch as closely as I did this time. Field in England we were talking, uh, Meg, when when we took a quick break. Steve and I were we couldn't stop gabbing about it. But halfway through the movie, I hated it, and three days later, I'm excited to watch it again. So I really <laughs> did like like that movie, and and uh, and and that would definitely yeah. be my my pick number two. But um, yeah, 
Man, I go from the top to the bottom. Guess that's, that's how. how <laughs> that's how it goes. I'm bringing the table definitely next time. Yeah, power bombing someone. So, so this. Uh, I want you guys to know that you are going to live to regret this decision because i am going to pick an absolute piece of shit for you to watch for the next one no no i'm, excited, I'm gonna pick actually. i have like three or four that i'm excited to to jump in for the first minisode after this and uh and just uh just just get real weird with it just get super weird with it I'm so excited because I feel like this is all your brainchild, and I feel like ultimately this I is have what you've been, been waiting. waiting I will for. not lie; I have been waiting to make you guys watch something real <laughs> stupid, real dumb, <laughs> real stupid, great. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, this was, yeah, this was I'm a lot so of fun. Uh, this was, uh, this was, there was a lot to discuss in this movies, uh, and mm-hmm. boy, did we discuss the shit out of it. Uh, I hope goodness. you enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. Um, and uh, once again, uh, we'll, we'll join you next Monday for another mini-sode. And what we're going to do is we're going to discuss a movie that I get to pick. Uh, and I'm going to make it a surprise because I haven't decided yet. Um, but it's going to be like one of three. And it's going to be uh, <laughs> it's going to be wild. So uh, we'll do that on the next mini-sode. Uh, we'll also probably what on the next one after that. We'll talk about what our potential topics for our next main episode are going to be. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll spin that wheel, figure out what they're going to be, and then we'll put them out on social media. So please uh, come check us out on at uh, Halloween is Forever on Instagram or at Hello Forever on Twitter or uh, Facebook page. We'll probably pop some sort of quiz on the Facebook page this time at uh, Halloween is Forever or. I said, shoot us a note if you got any suggestions at uh, at Halloween is forever pod at gmail.com. So uh, that being said, uh, appreciate it. Hope you had a good time for, for the Halloween is forever crew. I'm Brian. I'm Megan. I'm Steve. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.